This is Giant Robot FM, your home of all things Mecca, be it giant or otherwise. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. We have a special island edition of Giant Robot FM for you all today. Um, I think in 80s and 90s shows, it was like a staple, like in sitcom shows, to have not an island episode necessarily, but like let's all go to the beach, not unlike anime, for instance. Um, like Full House had episode where they went to Disney or Florida, and I, I could swear like there are other sitcoms where they like, you know kind of like forget characterization and just jump right into the beach for some beach shenanigans and that is essentially what we are doing today we are um traveling to kukuru stones island which is a real place which we'll talk about uh i I have some more facts which i did not include in my notes like the location of the original kukuru stones island which we'll talk about but before we get to that good stuff i am with me as always with pmc pmc hello Hello, I'm happy. I, I, I have to confess that I'm the sort of person who will open Google Maps and just check if there's like street view on random islands in the middle of the ocean. So the fact that Kukuru Stones Island is on a real island or like a confirmed island is very satisfying to me. I have so many thoughts because I would love to visit this island, but it's not easy. We'll talk about why. Um, but I'm all about abandoned islands in the, or deserted islands, or abandoned islands in the Atlantic, any ocean, but the Pacific, just like good, desolate walking vibes, a la Death Stranding. But PMC and I are not with us, well, we're not alone together, we're joined by our guest, Megan D, aka Brainchild129 on Twitter. Megan, welcome back to the podcast. I think this is appearance seven or eight? Something like that. We, we gotta get matching t-shirts. If you, we, if you had, <laughs> actually, if you were, um... In the, the dreaded scenario where you're a Xeon pilot, you would have, you notice on the Zaku units of the Southern Cross Corps, they have for their ranks like little stars filled in on the Zaku helmets. Or, and you might have those, you know, filled in based on your giant robot FM appearances. Or I get a t shirt that says, I went to Kukuru's Doan's Island and all I got was this lousy t shirt. <laughs> all I got there was this kick ass goat's milk. <laughs> I wish we had like a blue milk milk bit from like Last Jedi with uh, Mark Hamill just chugging that um, with, let's say, Doan. Yeah, I know. Kukuru's Doan would be your goat milk salesman. You know, he would just take a big swig and like, you know, br- you know, brush it off his face like that. Yes. I've never s- typed Kukuru's Doan so much in a <laughs> Google Doc in my life. But when you say Kukuru's Doan, I think of the place first. My mind is wired that way. So when I think when I say Doan, I think the person. When someone says Kukuru's Doan, which up until this last month didn't happen too often, I now I think of an island. Or I guess a film, too. All right, before we, we have some things to, business to get straight before we jump into the film proper. We are days out from the October 2022 Discotech panel. Megan, give me some hot takes here. This is a, People are very excited. As Mike Tool would say, this is a pants filler. Um, I cannot forget that after he uh, uttered those words into a mic at Otakon. Um, what are some of your takeaways from the announcements? It was definitely a pants filler. That there were a lot of well-fed fans last uh, this just this last Monday, as of this recording. Uh, you know, Toku fans are happy because they got a freaking common rider. I was impressed with that, and I'm not even a Toku person because I figured between the the previous common rider releases they've done and their previous relationship with Toei through their 
Super Sentai releases, I figured uh, Shout Factory had a lock on all the common Riders. And to get one that is apparently something of a fan favorite and the one that was the basis for uh, Masked Rider, that's not nothing. It was also a good night for Dezaki fans uh, between uh, Treasure Island, his, his famous late 70s adaptation of that, and one of the things I was really excited about, Aim for the Ace! The classic early 70s shoujo tennis anime. Like, one of one of the big influential series of not just uh, Dezaki's career, but uh, shoujo anime in general. Not, at the very least, a huge influence on Gunbuster, which, of course, they talked about a, a fair bit on that panel on Monday. Uh, so yeah, really excited for Aim for the Ace. Uh, also really excited that they rescued Saint Tail, which is a uh, well-known um, Phantom Thief Magical Girl uh, series from the 90s that was previously released by Tokyo Pop, and apparently their DVDs are pretty lousy, and they may apparently be starting to fall apart, because surprise, surprise, Tokyo Pop cheaped out on their DVDs along with their books. Who could be surprised? Thanks, Disco <laughs> Stew. <laughs> Uh, so, so yeah, those the those were the two big ones for me. Um, I like I said, no for others. It was the common writer announcement. Uh, I was the Dazaki stuff. Uh, for others, it was Gal Gaigar getting that back into print. That that's a good deal. I'm I'm excited to check that out. I I I left the stream before the announcement. It seems that Disco Tech <gasps> classically does like two final announcements. This happened at the Otakon panel as, as well. So they'll have like the final um, curtain call, so to speak. And then, like the one more thing, and they'll have another one more thing after that. And I didn't, I didn't trust him on that, so I left after that last announcement. And then my phone was blowing up, Twitter was blowing up with the Gal Gagar news. I was like, shit. As a Mecca podcaster, I should have stayed on just a little longer. And I guess the other thing is, it was a good night if you if you grew up with Foxbox. Like you know, mm. we're getting the Japanese version of Sonic X. We're getting the Japanese version of Digimon, which I, I'm a little too old for that. I occasionally saw episodes of that, but I wasn't like into it the way some younger millennials are. In uh, Ultimate Muscle, the that Kinikuman series that four kids dubbed, that apparently was one mm. of their better dubs. Yeah, I heard that show's like surprisingly funny. I'm not sure how well it's aged, but I remember at the time people. Uh, commented about the humor and there's like also a gamecube game as i'm sure pmc can attest yep i've seen that that is the only way in which i was aware of ultimate muscle and the game game was actually not too bad it's a fighting game like a like a four-person brawler yeah. and like a wrestling uh, right it's, it's it, i mean it, it is ostensibly a wrestling game but it's not like a wrestling game in the way that you know like it's like a wwe wrestling game or something like it's you know it's yeah funnier than that <laughs> I'm excited for Aim for the Ace, though. I'm glad that's... It seems that's going to come out before the Gunbuster Blu-ray, so I could watch it before. Man, the Gunbuster Blu-ray is packed, which is fantastic, but also, I don't smoke cigarettes anymore, but I was, like, smoking a metaphorical cigarette thinking, man, I'm going to have to do all this... I'm going to have to add so much to our history episode, which is great, but also, taking notes, listening to a commentary is uh, time-consuming, so I have that to look forward to in my future. I did it with the Giant Robot Blu-ray, as I'm going to do it again this time. It seems it's chocked full of new content, and... um, previously like unknown tidbits about the production of Gunbuster, which is super exciting. Yeah, that, that yeah. release date though. Crazy. I'm really excited that they're filling out like all the science references and whatnot because I already found like just from watching the show that was sort of an interesting thing what they were playing with. Uh, and to know that all that work is being put in to just explore that material. Very cool. Yeah. PMC, you're not a physical media guy, not to put you on the spot. Will you will you pick it up? Well, I pick up uh, Gunbuster. Yeah, uh, 
I, you know, I might, I've picked up some physical media. I think the only, I feel like the only real thing I've purchased since I've been podcasting was I do have a steelbook of Promare. Promare is very good. Uh, I, you have a steelbook of it? Oh, yeah, wow. yeah, I have a steelbook of it. Yeah, yeah. Well, because I wanted to, re- I wanted to, uh, I don't know, replace the, the steelbook of Persona 5 in my heart since I've sworn off liking Persona <laughs> ever again. Uh, so, you know, I, I do have that. That is uh, that. And I also have like a few. I think you would give me some extras of Ghibli films. So I have a few of those, you know, kicking around. You know, we'll see. We'll see. I, I definitely find this stuff very interesting. I also want to shout out. Uh, I'm like very close to cracking and looking into some like Tessujin 28 stuff because it just looks very entertaining Ooh. to me. And the fact that they they are getting the sequel series out from the 90s, that series looked great to me. I that looked extremely my shit. Uh and so yeah. I'm very happy to to have seen that. I mean, I haven't I, again, I have not actually watched anything Tessujin 28 like, you know, the, the you know, the original uh, series or or any of the remakes, but um it looks fun. Yeah, I forgot about the 90s one because when they were talking about all their previous releases, but yeah, the part of the reason uh, Yasuhiro Magawa made Giant Robo in the first place is he wanted to do Tetsujin 28 and he eventually got to in 2004, but that 90s series was already in the works at the time he wanted to, so he had to do something else with mm-hmm. uh, Yokoyama Mitsutera's uh, work and that's how he got Giant Robo. Right, right. It's funny, I was just prepping tomorrow's Mecha Day post. It's going to be Tetsujin 28 from the Shin Tetsujin 28 series, the 1980s series. Hell yeah. I would say I would definitely recommend the 2004 one. Mm. Um, when they were, Discotech was for a little while streaming some odd episodes on their, their Twitch stream outside of like their, their announcement streams. And they put up four episodes of that and I watched it and it was really good. That That sold that series for me. See, that's the perfect one to recommend me to. And do you know why? Because Why? there's a Sandlot developed mecha game that I believe accompanied the release <laughs> of that series for PS2. PMC knows the dark secrets of uh, ancient PS2 games. The reason this is interesting to me, and this is just a little piece of mecha history, is this developer Sandlot made a number of mecha games where the style was that you are controlling a person who is remote controlling a robot. And it would be more like uh, almost more like Mecha Quap in that you would be in controlling individual limbs, and it was very you know kind of an unorthodox or unusual control style. Remote Control Dandy for PS One was their first, but they also did it with they did it with Giant Robo, they did it with the Tetsujin Twenty Eight Two Thousand Four series. Uh, remote uh, was it Remote Alchemic Drive was uh, one that was actually published uh, in North America. And I, there's a DS one too that Tom Asimov recommended to me that has a fan translation. So the, there's a whole yeah. universe of these games, um, which are just sort of. It's interesting that they did so many of them and also managed to do. You know, naturally, it makes sense they did licensed games, but nevertheless, you know, they, it did happen. And it sounds like that style of game is definitely very apt for that kind of '60s boy and his robot style robot properties, like Tetsujin Twenty Eight, like Giant Robo. Yep. I'm looking forward to you potentially streaming that PMC. I really got to get a copy of Rad. I I I had money in my pocket at Otakon for it. It's not it's like super expensive. Mm-hmm. But it's expensive, but not yeah, by retro yeah, like yeah. by retro game standards. It's at least in the Steven he- uh, Hero wheelhouse reasonable. Yeah, so I got some credit. It's not Rule of Rose or Kuan, but you know it's still more more than my the original st- price. I had a student tell me they had a copy of Rule of Rose. I was like. Man, I would, I would uh, break my ethical code and give you an A. She already had the A, but for that copy of Rule of Rose. 
I would love to read about that scandal. I look forward to it. <laughs> All right. So we have one one thing I forgot to bring up during our history episode of Cuckoo's Stones Island is the dub. We talked about the dub, but we didn't talk about the future of the dub because um, there wasn't a lot of fanfare behind it. There was no there's no trailer official trailer of the dub on any streaming platforms. Um, it premiered, of course, the day after the sub in North America, and that's it. Like. Any takes on when it will reappear and in what format, like streaming or um, physical media? Oh, if it's coming on physical media, it's not going to be this year. It is bare minimum next year, and that's a big maybe because, I mean, we're still waiting on a physical release of that Hathaway movie, much less this. So unless you're willing to import the Japanese Blu-ray, which is certainly possible, certainly with the exchange rates being what they are, even if you have to get it second hand, yeah, I, I wouldn't hold my breath. I still think like a Netflix, it might drop on Netflix, but I feel like it should have already happened by now. Crunchyroll tied into that. that they're not paying money to put something on Netflix. Mm, true. PMC, you are a, you are a dub man in the history episode. Let, let, let's talk about the dub. Mm. Do you have any like uh, any standouts? I. I really want to say that I think the the actor who did Amuro really stepped up here. I really like the the Amuro dub performance. I mean, this is not the first time they yeah. did Amuro. Pardon? I would say I agree with you. Yeah, I think he did a good job. Yeah, no, I I I this is to me like perfectly channeled. It's in line with past performances of Amuro. Uh, it just really like it, it anchored the film for me in in a big way uh, to to have that performance. So I was really happy with that. I think uh, I think the Cougar's Dome performance was was good, uh, you know. But again, I, I think the Amuro one was, was really what pulled me along. In terms of others that I would want to highlight, the the maybe like the most unusual choice. I really wondered if they would go in for the Sylvester Stallone sound for Slugger Law, and they really didn't. They just kind of you know they went just for for a louse, just for you know it was just regular <laughs> I guess re- replacement level. Uh, you know, bad soldier, a frat boy, um, which is which is fine. A- again, I, I think it it, it works, uh, but it feels kind of uh, you know, comparing again to the Amro thing, like sort of like I w- I would be one I would want to know if that choice was made consciously because I could definitely respect it, but also like it, it's curious because I feel like you know, he's like law is so inescapably tied to a, the Sylvester Stallone look that you you would almost expect it anyway. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you pointed that out in Amro's performance, because I, I got a bit of sense of that, too. Like, he's not actively imitating Brad Swaley's performance from mm-hmm. uh, the original series, but it's close enough that, like, that they could dovetail pretty decently. Yeah. It, it wouldn't be too jarring. Absolutely. No, no, I mean, if someone, if someone like, watched the Ocean dub and then, like, I don't know, put this in the middle or something, you wouldn't, you, the Amro's performance wouldn't stick out. Yeah, agreed. I'm looking for uh, re-looking through the voice cast uh, now. I, I Mike Smith did a good job as Kukuru's Don. I'm I'm really partial to Agreed. his Japanese voice, um, but he did a great job. But also kudos um, for casting like relative unknowns too, because I'm looking at like what else mm-hmm. Mike Smith has done, and he's a voice of a police captain in the uh, most recent Lupin show, and that's really it. And did some additional voices in that show, so it's really cool getting new voices into the yeah. mix. It's always nice to see. No, Don Don and Slugger Law were both voiced by actors who at least had fewer credits on behind the voice actors. You know, not not that they, they couldn't have other things in their careers, of course. Yeah. 
Got to shout uh, out Crispy as per usual as a uh, <laughs> very forgettable character, Waldo Wren. So, we'll talk about this when we get to the pod, but so forgettable, I was like, I'm not even going to put these guys' well, names here's in. Here's the thing. The he ends, for me, he ends up being the most memorable character, and we'll get to it, but I, I, I also just want to say, like, I don't know, Crispin Freeman always imbues all of his characters of, like, such a such a gravitas that, like, they end up being memorable just for that reason, and and his characters run the full the full gamut. Whether it's the you know the villain in Promare or uh, his Tales of Symphonia character who who can't who can't fight with his fists because they're too deadly, like he'll take any role. Or um or what's his face Orange in um in Code Geass. You know like he oh, he, yeah. he excels at all. Yeah, I don't know. I only remember as Orange. I'm sorry, Luch. Jeremiah Gottwald. Yeah, Jeremiah Gottwald. All right. <laughs> But uh, I don't know. There's there's a reason people like him. He's good at what he does. Yeah, and he, he doesn't appear in a ton of anime dubs anymore, usually unless he's reprising a role. Like, Premiere is a big exception, and even in this, even if it's a fairly minor role, yeah, he did a good job, and I'm, I'm always happy to hear him in a dub. For sure. Yeah, I always like when it shows up. I've been uh, I've been putting Howl's Moving Castle on in the background a lot as my uh, daughter kind of vibes with it, and of course he shows up at the very end as the prince yeah. in that movie, but it's it's, uh, it's a little jarring. Um, <laughs> he does a great job with like the three lines he's given. Um, and also, <laughs> I had an old friend stop by, and uh, we have naturally thrown some Helsing Ultimate, and of course Crispy, uh, his a la carte voice absolutely rules. God, that dub makes that particular show, but... um. Oh, what else would I would add? Um, I, I agree with that. Cuckoo's Stones for me was the real highlight of the series. Uh, Amaro's voice actor was really good. Bright's voice actor was really good. Mm-hmm. Like, that's a tough act to follow in with both Japanese actors, both the late mm. uh, Hirotaka Suzuki and um, oh, the current guy is Kenarita. I think is his name. Yeah, I think so. He's, yeah, but he did a really good job. Um, I'm trying to think. I mean, you already mentioned Crispin Freeman. Uh, I, I have to. Praise the the staff for handling all those kids because you know they apparently NYAV Post makes a point of hiring kid actors whenever they have to cast children for the most part, and you know that that can be pretty chaotic and getting decent performances out of them. And I think they did a pretty good job there. Absolutely. In fact, the only one that really didn't quite work was Marcos, and just because listening to him is like that's an anime boy voice like that that is a professional <laughs> voice actor that is not a child actor and i was correct that was bryce pappenbrook yes yep and, and he's, it's not that he performs it badly it just he stands out compared to the other kids like that that is very much a grown person imitating a teenager in, in an anime actor sort of way and the other other voice that i didn't it's not even that again that, that they performed it badly it's just it, it didn't fit my expectation of the character was makuve like, mm. I don't know. I expected him to sound like a little older, a little haughtier, a little oilier, and he didn't. And, and it's hard to describe his performance otherwise. But it, it's not not the voice I expected to hear out of that character design. Yeah, is it the same uh, voice actor as an origin? Let's see, Ezra White's. Um, I believe that's correct. Because Ezra Ezra White is the one who, from my from my trivia, he is he's the one who was a uh, marker in the mm-hmm. original Gundam trilogy. Yeah, no, you're that's, right. That's weird then, because it didn't stand out to me while watching those origin episodes, and there's definitely a lot more Makuve in some of those later ones than there is here. But I don't know, maybe it's something to do with the direction. 
Oh, wow. He voices Mao in Code Geass. <laughs> oh, the thing's one Earth. Ah, but we cannot go down a wiki hole of voice actors because we will be here all day um, lobbing back, back and forth fun anecdotes. Because we have, before we jump into the film proper, we actually have a, a summary. Um, I'm not, so this, this was not pulled from a press release. Technically, I, there are a few summaries I could have pulled from because I grabbed one from Fandango, which is where I bought my tickets from. Um, but I could grab one from Cinemark, which is actually where I saw the movie with PMC. Um, but PMC, give us a um, give us a summary courtesy of Fandango. I, I assume Fandango. Who knows if who wrote this? This is really fun now because when Steven started giving me these summaries, they were originally like it was Macross Plus and it was like fun, you know, edgy advertising from the back of the VHS box. <laughs> but now we're getting like modern summaries where it's, it, you know, it doesn't have that edgy 90s quality, but like you definitely wonder what version of events the person writing this summary got. <laughs> because I'm definitely getting a few of these now that are like, what, what happened here? So let's have Fandango's summary of the 2022 Cuckoo's Dones Island film. After a covert mission goes wrong, mobile suit pilot Amaro Ray and his comrades are stranded on a remote island. The battalion was sent to a land called the Island of No Return to clear off any enemy forces, only to find a group of children and an enemy mecha attack. Now Amaro must find a way for them all to escape this mysterious land, but not before meeting a strange man, Kukuru's Done. This is the summary for a different film, but <laughs> I enjoy it nevertheless. <laughs> the Island of No Return. Sounds like something like, like Isla Nublar from Jurassic Park. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, so the film opens. A, a white and black White on black title card opens Doan's Island, informing the audience that this film is an adaptation of the 15th episode of the original Mobile Suit Gundam series, which aired in 1979. Immediately, we cut to the middle of a fight, which is more of like, I guess, a small-scale massacre, really, as a man named Doan, piloting a Zaku-2 and using its heat axe, makes quick work of two gyms and a gun parry on a deserted island. I got to say, I know some listeners are going to throw, like, throw their, like, if they were listening to this on with headphones on, throw their headphones off immediately, like the meme, um, because I'm going to say something that's a little controversial. I think the 3D CG has come very far in the eight years since the release of Origin Volume 1, which I guess isn't that controversial, but I'm all right with it. Like, I don't think it's perfect. doesn't reach the heights of late 80s, early 90s OVA or film, but I think it is a solid, at this point, I think it's a solid substitute for hand-drawn mecha combat. Uh, the colors are very vibrant in this film. Yamato Works does a great job in that regard. The suits don't feel awkwardly stiff. They feel appropriately stiff. And they move with a weight that is, um, again, appropriate to its design. And it's and still very visually dynamic. I, If given the choice, and this might be my most controversial thing I'll say, maybe on this podcast, and I'm really enjoying Retro Mercury, but I would prefer, I think I prefer the visuals, the 3D CG visuals in the mecha fights and this compared to Retro Mercury. Only by a smidge, but if you had to make me choose, it would be this. Eh, I'm not completely sold on it myself. 
Uh, I think the CG in some of those later origin episodes was a little better. I, I still feel like it was a, a little floaty here, a little, I don't know. Uh, it's hard to describe why I felt off, like almost a little bit like a cell shaded CG. But I don't think it's terrible. I don't think it's unwatchable. But I still don't think it's good as something like uh, Yamato 2199. That's still mm. my gold standard for integration of CG and animation and anime. At least in a mecha or mecha adjacent context. Yeah, I think, I don't know. I, I don't mind the CG too much. The thing that really undercuts the action in this film is going to be always just like the stakes never line up or fights are one-sided or... Because I, I almost feel like um, the the premise of the fights undercuts my ability to get into the fight, to get really engaged with what's going on. I do want to slip over to another note because one thing I, my biggest annoyance with the original Cuckoo's Dones Island was the opening of the episode where Amuro discovers two dying Federation soldiers left for dead on the beach. Mm. And uh, in this version of the story, I guess what are, you know, analogous uh, Federation soldiers, they are just outright killed in, in, in a battle with, with Cuckoo's Dones, which you know, makes makes more sense in in the context of the film, but it's definitely interesting. I, I feel like the, for for me, one of the biggest uh, you know plot holes in, in quotation marks was um, like immediately mopped up here. I mean, which makes sense. It would be towards towards the beginning, but I'm I'm glad it happened. It's definitely the the first of several what I'm going to call origin style rewrites of the the plot <laughs> of the Cuckoo's Stones Island episode. Yeah, I'm trying to think what would be the gold standard for me for 3D CG mecha stuff because I haven't seen too much. Um, I'm thinking of the Ava Rebuild films, which I have issues with uh, 3D CG wise. So I'd have to I have to sit on that for a while. But uh, yeah, I am happy with it. It's serviceable. I'm not like praising it from the rooftops or anything. Like listeners, don't get the wrong idea. I'm not saying it's like reaches the heights of 08th MS Team or Shars Counterattack or something like that. But it like it's good enough for me. And the middle fight, the the Casablanca fight, I think, rules, and that's what I'm really taken with, because I am always taken with street fighting, which we'll talk about later. Meanwhile, on Las Palmas, Palmas, a city on the Canary Islands southwest of Morocco, a disinterested bright receives orders from Federation HQ. Before Fleet Admiral Gop passes through Las Palmas to spearhead the assault on Gibraltar, the White Base and its crew are to travel to the island of Alagranza to mop up any remaining enemies. Let's let's talk about the real Doan's Island for a minute. So, you can actually visit Doan's Island. Alagranza is a real place, like the film indicates, and they clearly did their research. I have my doubts that they actually traveled here. I wouldn't be out of the ordinary if you consider Yasuhiko's career, though, because for Arian, correct me if I'm wrong, Megan, he traveled to, like, Turkey and Greece for a few weeks to order to, like, take yes. notes in order to get a real feel for the environment. Yes, he did. Uh, I, although, considering his age and COVID restrictions and all that, yeah, yeah, he probably did not travel out to the Canary Islands. This island in particular, the Canary Islands, is owned by a family. So you need the family's permission to step theoretically to step foot on the island and i imagine it's very because of that there's no like travel uh, there's no boats going there consistently so you would have to charter a private um boat in order to get there um i, I would i would be up for it if i was in the area um I, the canary islands seem really cool 
And this island in particular the, does have a lighthouse, and it's very desolate and deserted, which is peak vibes as far as I'm concerned. Like it's a, It seems to be a barren stretch of land from all the videos and pictures I looked at. Lots of craters and rocky terrain, very little in the way of vegetation. I am a little surprised, not too surprised, but a little surprised Yasuhiko didn't create a fictional island to truly make it Don's Island, but this is a very Yas move. He's all about streamlining the timeline and situating these events, these events from 0079 in a specific place. Like with Origin, we don't have to argue if Garma died in Seattle or New York. <laughs> PMC, you did a little uh, Google... Oh. Google's well, yeah, I, I did follow up on what I said earlier, which is that I'm a sucker for for looking up weird places on Google and Street View. Lots of times you'll find if you go to like weird places that, you know, people will post like panoramic photos from touristy spots. Uh, mm. That happens often with, you know, various natural areas, remote areas. Uh, but probably in line with what you said earlier, there there are no street view spots on this island <laughs> so you cannot uh the island immediately south of it which doesn't really seem to have too much uh, in terms of a uh, population does have like street view along the dirt roads and everything but uh not not on this one so as this was the best i could do with uh, some quick some quick google mapsing i don't want to dox the family because i can't i can't remember the name to dox them but um, if you wanted to pester these rich people to uh, go to Doan's Island, you could because uh, they're referenced on the Wikipedia page. I did f- discover something interesting, though. Um, in a recent interview with Yasuhiko, he says, I always thought that the in the original episode, it was based on the Goto Islands, which are a like a set of Japanese islands in the East China Sea. Um, so even in the original show, at least some of the creatives on the team had an idea, a vague idea of where Doan's Island is actually situated on planet Earth. And it's much easier to travel to those islands than Alagranza. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I did look, though, because Master and Commander, 21 books, it's all about um, traveling through all the seas on, and the globe. And some of my favorite books take place on deserted islands, but unfortunately, they never get to Alagranza. They, oh. they pass the Canary Islands. They never, never go to Cuckoo's Stones Island. No. A shame. All right, so Bright relays the mission to the White Bapes personnel, with the exception of Slegger who's busy boozing at a local bar. Kai's his usual petulant self, much to Bright's irritation. He, he says, quote, dot eyes is an especially bad mood today, end quote. <laughs> Bright orders Amaro, Kai, Job John, and Hayato in the Gundam, Gun Cannon, and Gun Perry, respectively, to carry out this mission. Amaro expresses some slight surprise, given that he still views the Gundam as a prototype, but Bright sets him straight. I imagine, especially for fans like in their 50s and 60s who watched Gundam growing up, and I saw on Twitter a lot of Japanese creatives who first saw Gundam in the theaters like uh, Studio Triggers and Maishi. Uh, Hideo Kojima, for example, first was introduced to Gundam with the film trilogy. I imagine when they... I, and Hideo Kojima is a movie fiend. He definitely saw Kukuru's Don't's Island in the theater. I imagine when he was sitting down to watch this, this scene in particular, like really hit him in the feels. Like seeing the gang together on the bridge of the white base as if nothing's changed. It's 1979 again, or 0079. Like I understand. We, PMC and I have spent new, many hours complaining about prequelitis in regards to origin and also in regards to, of course, Star Wars. And scenes like this are very navel gazy and commercial. I don't mind a little indulgence in my prequels. This is a very cozy scene. Like, the nostalgia is so potent, 
And I think the saccharine music track really emphasizes that point. It's like when Han and Chewie show up in The Force Awakens. Like, yeah, their presence in the narrative is forced, has the potential to eclipse the new cast, but I can't help but smile big when he says, Chewie, we're home. And I think the same applies here. The nostalgia is so affecting, at least for me. The team chit-chat as the gun parry flies over the Atlantic. Job John informs Kai that the Xeon remnants they're supposed to deal with are agents intentionally left behind by a withdrawing force for the purpose of sabotage and espionage. The cloud cover picks up the closer they get to their destination. It seems a storm's coming. Mirai brings Bright some coffee. Bright wonders if he was too harsh with Amaro. Mirai tells him he needs to be gentler with him. He's a sensitive boy. It's a very nice exchange here. Bright, Obviously, Bright and Mirai give off big married couple vibes, which is obvious for a lot of reasons. Um, There's telegraphing, ha- telegraphing happening here, but I think the action of Mirai offering Bright coffee speaks to a lot. Like One, it shows how frazzled they both are. They have both been thrust into positions of power at remarkably young ages, and Bright is not balancing the stresses of middle management well. He's taking it out on his subordinates. And I really like Mirai giving the cup of, like making a cup of coffee, especially for Bright. And who knows, maybe it was like his favorite blend. Like maybe she took some time to learn something about Bright and to make his very own special cup of coffee. Because there is something very intimate and time-honored about sharing a hot beverage, especially when someone goes out of their way to brew a cup, especially for you. It speaks to an intimacy and like in a, like we're in it togetherness. There's a similar scene in Gurren Lagann before the big episode eight, between Yoko and Kamina, and there's a great scene in Evangelion where I think it's Misato gives Ritsuko a cup of coffee that she made especially for him. That scene rules. This scene rules. I wish I wish we had more interactions between the two of them in their film because as Megan's about to echo, I love me some Bright and Mirai. Yes, first of all, let me get this out of the way. Oh, God, yes. Thank you for feeding us so well. Uh, secondly, I forgot this was the scene where they included the, the reanimated clip of the Bright Slap. I, mm. I, I forgot they reanimated that, even though they they showed it off in some of the promotional stuff before the movie came out in Japan. And that was kind of interesting to see, because I think Yasuhiko was key animator on that original scene back in 79. Um, but also, I think uh, between this and some of the earlier mentioned scenes, I think this is the first time we've actually seen Bright's office in animated form. Oh, correct me if I'm wrong. Um... Uh, and I remember around the time this came out in Japan, some very sharp-eyed fans in Japan looked at their own Blu-rays and uh, noticed some family pictures and stuff behind Bright uh, during these scenes, which is probably the first information we've actually gotten, the, kind of that part of his backstory. And from what people can determine, uh, it looks like not only was he an only child like most of the main characters in Mobile Suit Gundam, as far as we know, uh, it looks like he's the Federation equivalent of an army brat. Looks like his dad was an officer too. So he was kind of carrying on a family tradition. I was just going to ask: Does that picture have his uh, father? Does his father have a receding hairline? Because I need my Noah receding hairline. Please, someone <laughs> give it to me. Hey, now baldness comes from the mother's side of the family. True. I, I am. I am living proof that is not the case. However. <laughs> I was going to say, because I, I, when I'm thinking of um, of Bright's office, I think it's correct, but it's got to be like specifically, you know, it's important to distinguish between Bright's office and Bright's room because I, I yeah. think in, in the TV series, we do go to Bright's room. I think the most memorable scene is probably when uh, when Kai finds uh, Miharu 
uh, sneaking around. I believe that's supposed to be Bright's room because Kai shows yeah. up there looking for Bright. But, that's after this. Yeah, that would also be... A, oh, yeah, I guess this is... If it is the same room, then you're right. Chronologically, uh, it would be it would be earlier. Um, but anyway, the, the, there might be different rooms, though, because, I, 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 you know, he's the captain. I don't know. You could have an office and a, and a you know lodging quarters. That's not... <laughs> and a bunk. I, can, I don't know if those are the same rooms. You know, I, they could be different rooms. But, yes, uh, like Stephen Hero, you know, as one of the, the few outspoken Bright Mirai fans in this fandom, I, I was very pleased with the scene. To borrow the nickname that Tom and Nina gave them over on Mobile Suit Breakdown, Space Mom and Dad Forever. I'm just very afraid to, like, podcast about Bright, future Bright. I don't know if we'll ever get to that point in depth, but I'm, like, very afraid of, like, Unicorn Bright, which I have no knowledge of. And, of course, I have knowledge of Zeta Bright and his some of his other appearances. The only thing I fear is those later Hathaway movies, but we'll get there when we get there. Yeah, I was going to say, might. I don't think you have too much to fear from Zeta, Double Zeta, and Unicorn, but I would live in fear of the Hathaway's Flash movies. We might get that receding hairline, though. Mm. And the mustache. We have to find out about the mustache. <laughs> True. I do like the mustache. Uh, it's very funny. Navigating the cloud cover, they fly over the island. They spot a downed gun parry, but not the GMs. Bright orders them to touch down. Hayato doesn't feel good about this. Now in their respective suits, Kai suggests they split up. Amuro agrees. He makes for the interior, while Kai checks out the lighthouse. This is a surprisingly tense and atmospheric scene for Gundam. It's almost gothic, and by that I mean it's almost like a piece of gothic literature. They're not traveling on horseback through some dark forest to shelter at a sinister-looking castle, but it does hit the same beats. The storm sets up feelings of uneasiness, and there's something clearly off about the island. It'll be up to Amuro to unravel the mystery of the island and his quote-unquote benefactor, but I couldn't help to draw parallels between the two. I mean, I am teaching Gothic literature now, so it's it's on my mind, but I still do think um, there's a version of Cuckoo's Don't Island that takes out like all the side stuff and just focuses on the island and there could be some really that could that could make for a really interesting film if they really like leaned into the mystery of it and maybe made Alagrons are just a little bit more distinct and atmospheric there's a version of Cuckoo's Stone's Island where Cuckoo's Stone is a vampire <laughs> <laughs> the Edgar Allan Poe version mm-hmm. of Cuckoo's Stone's Island also love how much job john we're getting i will not i will not use the dub pronunciation pmc that's the biblical pronunciation yeah i mean i because i'm pretty sure in the original ocean dub they would say they would say job john and then uh i'm pretty sure at some point someone in this in this movie dub says job john which is (laughs) i i frankly upsetting it sounds like a character in sd gundam like those weird zaku (laughs) units it does not does not i will not say it no you cannot pay you know I will not eat it, Sam. I am. I will not yeah. say it. It's not. It's not Titus. It's Titus. Exactly. <laughs> Though I'm more partial to Titus than I am Job. Yeah. Sorry, PMC. <laughs> I still say. I still say Titus recreationally. And I. I, I think our boy ha- might have more lines in this film than the entirety of First Gundam. So the kudos to uh, all the Job John rep- representation we get. Yeah, I remember joking with my husband afterwards that this film alone probably doubled the total screen time he's ever had across the entire franchise. I would be curious how Japanese fans feel about him. Because on the very small space that is Gundam Twitter, he has his fans. It's hard not to like Job John just because, 
I, I can't really speak to his personality too much, but he comes across as very idealistic, you know, cute boy, um, you know, a little starry-eyed, I guess. Maybe I'm, I'm, I'm projecting too much onto him, but it, he's like um he's like a blank slate because you can project anything you want on him. Yeah, he's got about the same level of fandom as someone like Astonage, if we're speaking to later Gundam shows. Mm. That is a very apt comparison for sure. As he approaches the lighthouse, Kai notices a plowed field, suggesting that the island might be inhabited. Confirming his suspicions, while on a call with Bright, a group of children begin pelting the gun cannon with rocks, telling him to go away. Meanwhile, Amuro discovers Zaku footprints, which lead him to a cliff overlooking the ocean. I wanted to jump here because this is the beginning of one of the weird uh, through lines of the film, which is that all of the like all of the um, you know non Amuro members that are deployed in the field are mostly deployed for comic relief, and like some of the bits are pretty funny. I laughed out loud in the theater when Amuro shut off Kai in the middle while Kai was speaking. That's very good. It was very good. But it kind of prevents them from like meaningfully engaging in in like the action or the plot. It's a, it's a weird mix. It's definitely one of those things where uh I'm going to I'm probably going to repeat this a few times, but like one of the reasons I like saying that this is this would be like an excellent background noise film is because you can tune in and have a lot of fun with specific moments. But I don't know if I want to sit down and watch it from beginning to end. Yeah, co-sign on that. I'll have more to say about that later. I was going to say, if I'm remembering things correctly, at this point, Kai is still very much in his snotty little asshole face. So, And again, if I'm remembering correctly from Origin, he's still not quite at it as far as a gun cannon pilot. So I, I don't feel like this is completely inconsistent with his skill level for this particular point in the story. Yeah, I, I do think that is, that's definitely a fair thing to say because he doesn't really, like his big uh, launch point will be post-Belfast, you know, with, yes. with the Miharu events. Job John has to have more lines than Hayato in this film, right? I think so. It's like, yeah. Hayato's like major line is like, hey, I'm going to square up on this goat, immediately eat shit, so... Uh, <laughs> Hayato. Yeah. <laughs> I do like me some Hayato. In a manner reminiscent of the Jason Momoa meme with Henry Cavill, Doan in his Zaku gets behind <laughs> Amro and his Gundam and grabs the Gundam, pushing it towards the sea. Amro loses his beam rifle, but manages to push the Zaku off. Doan retaliates with his heat axe, which Amro blocks with his shield. Now armed with his beam saber, the two square off. Close quarters combat ensues. I do like how menacing Don Zaku is. It, it really is in this scene a force of nature. Uh, we called the RX-782 a slasher villain before, and, and if that's the case, to keep this metaphor going, and to keep this gothic theme going, Don Zaku is more like Frankenstein's monster. And by Frankenstein's monster, I mean like the film version. Because as far as I'm concerned, if you're reading Frankenstein, the novel, the Shelley novel, I always make it a point to call it Frankenstein's creature or the no i don't like the possessive of it i just call it the creature because i'm most people are very sympathetic to the creature um, but when i say monster i'm thinking about the film adaptations or i guess the film interpretations of frankenstein like this being a very sinister force of nature and, and we get it in spades here and it's, it's really good design and it is pretty chilling my brain is so poisoned by the internet making uh 
Frankenstein is not actually the name of the monster jokes that I'm now like <laughs> trying to think of how to make a, a Doan is not the name of the Zaku, but it doesn't really work the same way. But this is what you've done to me. The best one is the one where they write on the last page. And by the way, you can just, what is it like? By the way, you can just call it Frankenstein. Yeah, I, I remember. Call, it's, this is unfortunate. We're forgetting a good joke, so we can't tell yeah, it on the I'm, podcast. I'm, I'm, I'm butchering Cucurus whoever Dolan is not the Cucurus. name of the island, guys. It's the yeah. name of the guy. <laughs> right, right. Of course. Armistead. <laughs> like I said before, whenever someone says Cuckoo Stone, immediately think of the island, not the person. Mm. Maybe he's going to have that issue rookie, going forward in his rookie, life. Who knows? Rookie mistake. Yeah, maybe maybe <laughs> Doan. Maybe Doan will show up like in some future material. Like, what's he up to in F ninety? Who knows? Amuro misses the Zaku, slashing at the cliff, which causes it to lose structural integrity. The ground ruptures before collapsing into the ocean, taking Amuro with it. Kai, retreating from the onslaught of rocks, returns to the gun parry, where he and Job John. Both acknowledge that they've lost contact with Amro. They relay this information back to Bright. Slegger, reeking of booze, returns to the white base. Much to the crew's surprise and disapproval, Bright orders them to get out of there. They'll return for Amro after the storm passes. Bright asks Slegger to look for him. In the fit of a, what seems to be almost a fever dream, Amro sees visions of his mother, father, and Shar, effectively recapping the first 13 episodes of 0079. Like so many mecha protagonists before and after him, Amuro wakes up to the sight of an unfamiliar ceiling. And of course, this is how the film, and I'm not really criticizing this, It's I get why they did it, but it's it's shoehorn Shar into the movie, we get a Shinji Ikeda line. Um, I, I really like this montage, the visuals are very well done. I'm not an expert at this, but correct me if I'm wrong, Are Shar, is the Shar Red Zaku and the Gundam, are they hand-drawn here? Because they do look different to me from their 3D CG counterparts. Because if that's the case, it's, it is a nice nod to the original series. I have no idea. It looks different. Yeah, it definitely does look different, but also I am the wrong person to ask. Yeah. Yeah, I feel I feel like if I, if I made that observation on Twitter, Gundam Twitter would be all over me. I'll get so many corrections. So I don't want to wade too far out there. But it looks cool. And it's definitely on their mind because they mentioned in interviews like, yeah, we really, we, we're with you. We'd really like to do hand-drawn mech animation. But we've got like three guys from the 70s and they cannot draw an entire film. I'm basically paraphrasing what Ogata, the producer, said. As for me, like, I, I get why they included Shuichi Ikeda, but I'm still sad that they didn't go with my, my, original, my own idea, which I might have brought up last time, that his cameo should have been Char just randomly flying over the island, looking down saying that sure is Kukarud Stone's <laughs> Island. And that's it. I wish Gundam had fun like that. I wish like that was, was the more, end I, of the film. Yes, yes. But, yeah. Forget forget the white base flyover. No. Just just do Shar shows up and does that. Yeah. Now that's good. <laughs> I had uh, a joke when I was, was gonna, uh, oh. go on Mike. Uh something else was gonna ask about that a previous scene where Bright has to give the order to go because command is telling him one. I, I like the tension when Slager shows up, just like, what's the matter? And Mariah has to be one like, you know, Mariah is the one who has to, you know, fill him on the situation. Also, I noticed this throughout the film that Yasuhiko manages to capture just th- those little expressions of anger and frustration that Bright makes throughout the original origin manga. I, I don't know if anyone else noticed them, but I noticed them. Thank you, Yaz. Yeah, I there's love some those. great. I love those there's bits. Some, 
there's some great sketches in the art book I was digitally thumbing through the other day, and there's some really good yes, uh, bright sketches, like rudimentary bright sketches, which kind of have that like annoyed bright look, which is my favorite. Yes. So it is the next morning. Amuro wakes up from his dream. Amuro quenches his thirst as inquisitive children pop their heads in to get a look at him. After resting for a bit, Amuro decides to stretch his legs and get his bearings by exploring his environment, this new environment. He discovers a goat named Blanca. The goat has a name. And a bunch of kids he discovers, too. Doan's outside, breaking rocks as one does. Uh, the resident kids and teenagers eye Amuro down as he goes to confront Doan. He asks Point Blake to Doan what he did with his mobile suit. Doan doesn't answer. Amuro proceeds to go look for it. Gotta love Blanca. Blanca is the goat. Blanca is the goat, goat of Gundam. Are, is there a big history of goats in Gundam? Because we're having a, a renaissance right now, a goatissance of both... <laughs> The most recent episode of which for Mercury and also this film. And it makes me wonder, like, could I go back and find goats? Could we make a pick your goat mecha edition tweet? I, I don't know if that's the case, but uh, I'm happy with it. Goats are fun. Yeah. Could we do a choose your fighter goat meme with just, <laughs> with just, just ex- extend it just a mecha? I'm not sure. Maybe there might, there has to be th- two other goats in a mecha yeah. show sometime. Somewhere. Goat versus goat. Goat versus goat. Yeah. <laughs> And that is one lovingly drawn goat. Like, yeah. Blanca is animated the same level that the horses were in that third movie for uh, Encounters in Space. Mm. What is, we, did, we didn't mention this on the Radio for Mercury pod. What is the name of the goat in that? It's, 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 it starts with a G. Oh, the goat does have a name? Yeah. Okay. Say the goat has a name? Yeah, the goat has a name. See, this is- Peak th- pot. What's up? I was going to say, it's peak podcasting here as uh, we frantically just try to find the ghost name. <laughs> Whatever it is, though, it's not as lovingly animated as, of course, uh, its counterpart in Cuckoo's Stones Island. PMC is going to do some fact-finding. Yeah, I'm, work- I'm working on this. I'm, uh, the problem is, is that there are so many posts of people saying Choo Choo is the goat that it is making <laughs> it difficult to find the actual goat. It could take you years then to find it. <laughs> Tired and dejected, Amuro traipses across the desolate island looking for the Gundam. He keeps up the search well into the night. Meanwhile, the kids, along with Doan, joyfully chow down on dinner. Kara, the older green-haired girl who looks like she works at a Trader Joe's, is worried about Amuro. Doan gives her permission to deliver him water. The way in which this dinner is organized is very, it's smartly laid out and does speak volumes. Like, allow me to be my undergraduate, obnoxious, anarchist, armchair theorist self for just a sec. The relationships that have formed on the island between the foundlings, between these war orphans, seem to be devoid of overbearing authority. They're not completely devoid of authority. Doan does exercise some authority over the kids, and of course they look up to him, they follow his orders. Um, but it's not like there is a clear caste system that governs this island. Unlike the white base or side three, there's no explicit hierarchy. This is mutual cooperation in action. The kids tend to their daily tasks, which includes fishing, milking, cleaning, for the betterment and benefit of the group. No one is hoarding excess supplies and no one is left wanting. And to be honest, this dinner looks good. It seems that they're feasting. Their lives might not be the best in other regards, but they have a consistent supply of food. 
This is a striking contrast with the white base, where rations are allotted based on status and importance. This is brought up in the SALT episode of Mobile Suit Gundam. I can't remember the exact episode title or uh, number, but it's in the like first half of the show. And things are obviously no better on side three, which the origin manga and OVA explored. But Zeon society is equally as segmented and aristocratic. And I do like how this film offers up an alternative, even though it really can't be permanent. I do like how um, we get to see a, a contrast, an actual contrast bet- uh, that's different from Zeon or the Federation. See, I don't know if you can you can really make the this sort of application just because I mean, I mean for starters, you're dealing with you know an adult, maybe two young adults, and and a number of children. And children, you know, like you can't. You can't really share power and decision making with them. There's a certain amount of, you know, guidance and parenting True. And, and whatnot that you need to do with them. Uh, but even then, like, I feel like even if you put aside that, which is the more important thing to consider when dealing with young people, uh, there's also like Doan is doing things that he is, you know, concealing from the group. And some of that involves... Uh, decisions that are, you know, maybe causing them some hardship. Obviously, the power thing is probably the biggest part of that. Now, there's you know, a pretty good reason I think he's doing that, which is to uh, to reduce the risk of, you know, exposure by lights and other things on the island. Uh, but still, you know, that's something that, that affects them. Uh, how do you reconcile that with the, you know, n- normal order that you would expect from having a bunch of kids on an island? I don't know. Uh, you know, that's, that's also an, an ordeal, but yeah, I guess I, mostly what I'm just saying is I don't know if I can, if I can really slot it in neatly just because of the, the parenting consideration and also the sort of technical considerations, the wartime consideration maybe. Mm-hmm. No, that's a good point too. I think I have like Lord of the Flies on the mind, which is a different, um, interpretation of how a bunch of kids would act on the island. Of course, there is no, there's no Doan on that island. <laughs> Um, but things definitely seem to be running better here. But you are right. He does exercise power. That's why I said devoid of overbearing authority because he does – there is authority on the island. I just feel like this is an interesting contrast to how things go on the white base mm-hmm. and how like Bright administers that's his sense of justice compared to um, Doan, for instance. Kara catches up with Amro and checks up with him. She delivers the water and invites him to dinner. On the way back, Amro notices the lighthouse is not giving off any light. Kara replies that the generator is damaged. Turns out that it's Julian's, one of the young boys, the one who kind of looks like a little Amro with a baseball cap. His birthday is coming up. His one wish is that the lighthouse gets fixed. Uh, So they're talking about that as dinner is progressing. Kara returns with Amro. He is not greeted warmly. For obvious reasons, the kids don't trust outsiders, soldiers especially. Despite their protestations, Kara gives him a fresh meal. Doan and Amuro are formally introduced. Doan tells Marcos to give him a pair of trousers. Trousers. The kids give him their thanks, promising to be kind and productive members of their community. Amuro is rightly shocked watching the kids come together like this, and they're all vowing solidarity to each other. And to put myself in Amuro's shoes, I feel like he's never experienced such fraternity before. Like, before the war, he was neglected by his father, dealt with a broken home, which we saw a bit in origin. On the white base, at this point in time, he is made physically like and violently to fall in line and follow orders. Seeing all these kids voluntarily pitching in for the betterment of the community is something by Amro, and by extension, the audience, hasn't really seen much before in a Gundam show, which is kind of what I was getting to before when I kind of talked about um, the more cooperative feel of these scenes. 
Something that struck me while watching this scene, and some of the, the others we'll talk about as his relationship with Doan and the kids develops through the film, it's not just that Amaro hasn't experienced this kind of camaraderie, or even, you know, lol, city boy, space noid kid has to experience rough living for the first time, but Amaro is an only child, like most of the main cast of Mobile Suit Gundam, to come to think about it, uh, you know, he never really experienced siblings of his own or even those of his friends. The closest things he's had to experience with little kids is the orphan trio on the white base. And even then, he's not really the one interacting with them on a daily basis. That's Frau's duty for the most part. So this whole movie, the whole plot of this movie is basically the closest Amro's ever gotten to knowing what it's like to have a sibling or a lot of siblings. I don't know that that just struck me for some reason. Yeah, it is really striking how much, uh, especially members of the white base, do not really seem to come from big families, or at least uh, it's not the impression that we get of, of life on side seven, right? I mean, Hayato's by right. himself, Frau by himself, uh, by herself, uh, Amaro by himself. Uh, that is definitely it is definitely very interesting. Uh, also, it's meant to emphasize that they they. They find their found family on board the white base. They sure. become a family. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, that's that's where things go. Uh, but you know, past experiences inform the future for for sure. I also want to mention that it's just very fun to me that I think the kid has what is pretty convincingly a Cincinnati Reds baseball cap. Um, so you know, maybe baseball is still out there. It's the one constant through all the years. Uh, go Phillies. <laughs> <laughs> You know, half uh, the world's population might have died, but the Cincinnati Reds still exist. Cincinnati yeah. still exists. Skyline Chili still exists. <laughs> that, that's the ass touch, because he could have made up a baseball team like they did in that Cowboy Bebop episode, mm-hmm. Wild Horses. I can't remember. Doohan and his assistant, yeah. or his assistant's really into listening to baseball on the radio. I cannot remember it. Um, Blue Sox, maybe? What's Something the, like What's that. the real name? Is it Blue Sox or Black Sox? Black Sox. There's actually yeah, there's Black Sox and White Sox. No, 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 no. White Sox and Red Sox. White Sox and Red yeah, Sox. That's no, either blue no or black. Sox. Boston yeah. Red Sox, Chicago White Sox. Okay. Yeah. I'm no baseball expert, clearly. Making a baseball is like a good tradition though. Uh I can definitely like um uh Hamlet, aka Space Griffin VF nine, also has like an extensive conversation about fictional baseball. Hmm. From the comfort of his HQ in Belfast, Revel transfers command of the White Base from Gop to him. He wants the White Base to help with the upcoming Odessa offensive. Bright is ordered to make his way to Belfast, much to his chagrin. He breaks the news to the crew, who voice their objections. They, of course, want to rescue Amuro. After Bright leaves, in one of the most rock and roll moments of the film, Slegger asks Kai, Ever want to face face a court martial? I, I really butchered that there. <laughs> Ever want to face a court martial? Also, we get a lot of Gop in this film. Like Gop is such a fucker. <laughs> he really earns his name. He's a real he's a real Gop of a man. Yeah. I have expected him to betray the Federation somehow. Like he he's got you know traitorous bastard written all over him. Yeah, and when the missile um, doesn't uh, destroy anything, he's like, oh, all right. Gop fans, I apologize if any of you exist. <laughs> Meanwhile, Makuve initiates a video call with Gop, asking him to halt the Federation assault on Gibraltar. If the Federation fails to comply, Makuve claims several major cities will be annihilated. This is a very... We have to have some historical reference in 
um, a Yasuhiko penned or a Yasuhiko influenced work, and we get an allusion to World War II, which is uh, Yas does a lot. Gott brings up Hitler's "Is Paris Burning?" message. So to give a little historical background, the Allies, 1944, the Allies are rapidly advancing after D-Day. They're coming closer and closer to Paris. The Germans put up like a very weak defense of Paris, and Hitler gives the order, like, if this fails, I want you to dynamite a lot of the major locations and basically set fire Nero-style to Paris. The German soldiers do not ca- uh, carry that out, but this is what it's referring to, and I like it. It's an- And Makuve's callback later in the film is very nice. It's also a great film. I read the book, Is Paris Burning? It's a historical account. Um, the movie's really cool, too. It's from the 60s. I wanted to bring attention to the um, to the the giant aircraft carrier that Gop is using. It's uh, like a very powerful looking thing. I almost have to wonder if it's a Yamane design. You know, I know he's the he's the tank guy, but mm. this this feels very like massive tank, like the sort of tank like that you would see in like a like a like a you know post apocalyptic like a mobile fortress kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, it's neat. I like it. It's you know, it almost feels out of place again because it feels more like a like a post apocalyptic nightmare. But I'm I'm glad that it's here very briefly. You could tell whenever I see designs like that, you could tell like the inner the boy of the mechanical designer um, was just thrilled. Like you know, someone drawing a a tank with like six cannons coming out yep. of it. Like when uh, Miyazaki talks about, like, I'm no otaku, and then he's like, look at the plane go up and down. <laughs> There's a great meme online. Actually, I think it's kudos to Russell. Um, fantastic uh, a deployment of two separate frames. And now I'm thinking about those gyms again. Because like, only a five-year-old boy can draw the March of the Gyms from Origin. Mm-hmm. Mm, I would love to see that animated. Oh, my God. <laughs> so cut to war-torn Casablanca, where the Southern Cross Corps and elite Xeon squad holds up Zeon's defensive line by annihilating a group of gyms. The team is made up of Doan's former comrades. His treachery still stings, apparently. All right, so I'm really warm on this. PMC is not, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shoot my shot first. I think this is the best fight of the film. Like, I'm very partial to street fights in Gundam, particularly street fights that take place during the day. They're usually some of the best mobile suit combat that Gundam has to offer. Of course, I am thinking of OE the Mess team, but there are other examples as well. And we see some of those fights in um, even First Gundam, for instance. The, because of this, because of the street fighting, I think I talked about this in the Garma Death episode, even though it doesn't take place during the day, it takes place at night. These environments lend themselves to outside-the-box tactics, and the buildings provide such a visually evocative sense of scale, I think both of which are true here. The Southern Cross Corps are a bunch of bastards, but it was very cool for me to see them run the table and dispatch those gyms with ease. And like the axe play, like them using the axe is super cool, I thought. Yeah, I think I I agree with some of your general premises because, of course, the city fight in 8th MS team rules. Everyone loves that fight. But, you know, there was all sorts of differences that I would, you know, I would draw up to to contrast these. You know, the the context of that is very clear. You're trying to protect the gun tanks that are firing on the Xeon soldiers. Here, we don't really have a context for, for like what this fight is about. We uh, we don't know who the the gym pilots are. We are just being introduced to the Southern Cross, and it really feels you know the the sort of like mission statement of this scene is hey, Southern Cross is cool. They're effective. Y- yeah, you guys see that right? But you've already told me at this point that that like gyms are idiots. 
Like, this is not, if you are a pro gym person, this film is not for you. (laughs) There is no point when, like, when a gym looks cool in this film, except for maybe when, uh, when Sale and Slager shoot down some of the planes and, like, that's about it. Uh, this is definitely not a pro gym movie. Uh, I am pro gym, therefore, I am not pro this fight scene. Uh, but like again, I think the biggest problem is that it, the narrative objective of the fight is so nakedly clear that it prevents me from getting engaged. Mm. Yeah, I have to side with PMC here. Like this is not so much a fight for a fight's sake. This is more an introduction to the Southern Cross Corps, and you know, here they are. Here's what they do. Aren't they awesome? Check out these Akus. Buy the model kit. True. Right. Yeah, you, they it's have to look good at least once because they aren't going to look good later. <laughs> this scene definitely has a commercial veneer over it. I will admit to that. Interestingly, PMC pointed out, like, who are these gym pilots? Um, in the build-up to the film's release, because, of course, Gundam Ace ran a special dome-focused issue that featured a one-off called Assault on Casablanca that presumably tells this ill-fated story from the Federation perspective. Uh, Xeonic Scans on Twitter posted a, a few um, scans of it. It looks, well, it looks whatever, but um, if, I guess if you're really interested in the backstory of Doan's Island, and believe it or not, there's less than you think, because like I mentioned in our history episode, there it's not connect. It's not a continuation of the Doan manga. I'm sure he pulled a few things from that, but the Southern Cross Corps are not introduced in that manga. They are introduced for the first time in this film. So really, if you want to learn the backstory, I'm going to talk about those narrative gaps later on. You do have to, you basically have to read the novel, which you would need to be able to read Japanese to do that. And pres- I'm only saying this presumably it's in the novel. Would that special issue of Gundam Ace in preparation for the film have been a Kukuru's tome? Oh, boo! Megan, on a scale of 1 to 10, rate that pun. Boo! Boo, I say! Oh, God! <laughs> right off the old dome. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Any thoughts? So, obviously, if you've if you've listened to this podcast before, we usually pause and talk about the mech designs. There's not really too much to talk about in this film because they're older designs. Um, I'll have a, few, a little bit to say later. I think that, by the way, Don Zaku's cool. I love Damage Zaku's. I think it's a great vibe, and uh, it's the same in this this film. Um, I'm not really too hot on the high-mobility Zaku 2 units. I don't find too much distinctive about them. Of course, they move very quickly, um, a la the Doms, even though the technology is different. Um, yeah, they're whatever, as far as I'm concerned. They they reek of like bog-standard variations that you would see on like a, a toy aisle or something like that. I'm the worst person to ask about mobile suits because, uh, again, for most of the one-year war stuff, I'm just like, meh. And that goes double for the Zaku and all of its variants. The the only thing I just noticed, and literally I just noted this just now, do Zakus usually have those star-shaped knees, or is that something special for the Southern Cross Corps? Oh, that hmm. might actually be special. I don't think they do. Yeah, no, the, their, nor- their normal knees are just kind of like uh, like a, like a rectangle or something. So that's so yeah, that's a nice little decorative fl- flourish. I'll give it that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I feel like my biggest issue is just like I don't know. I, yeah, maybe this is just me being like the 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 stuffy coastal elitist, but I definitely roll my eyes at like tactical camo type things. <laughs> so yeah, you yeah. know, if you're gonna sell it, me a model help- of it, make it look cool. Yeah, it doesn't help they're all in desert camo, which is just, you know, brown on brown. Yeah, it's really, like, that's why I, I as much as I like the highly mobile thing that is is very cool, 
I would almost prefer that they just had doms because like the doms have like a sick color scheme. Like they got a, they got a real like night vibe going and these guys are just in desert camo. Yeah. The, the, the desert camo really like hurts these designs. You bring up an interesting point though, like in defense of my original assessment of the fight, the reason why I like it is because I feel like it grounds the mobile suits because in the later fight on Doan's Island, they're just like skating around um, their opponents. I feel like it loses that sense of like ground, like uh, tactics. It's just kind of like a Code Geass fight. That's why mm. um, I, I like street fighting. That's why I liked um, this battle. And it's cool to see like a, another variation of the gym, even though it doesn't look good, um, because <laughs> the other gym we'll get later is dog shit design. Worst design in the world. But it's so ugly, <laughs> it's good. Like... Yeah, no, I'm glad it's in the film. <laughs> I gotta see if I get it. Um, you know, that might be my first model kit. I've been talking so much trash on it. It's gotta exist. Slager definitely has a fan base in Japan. Real quick, do we have a favorite kid? Um, I didn't really address this in the notes. The, I mean, no one really stood out too much. I like the, I can't remember his name. Uh, the the nerdy kid with the glasses. Yeah, the nerdy kid with the glasses who was in charge of milking. Like yeah. he is, he is Miguel, re- maybe. Yeah, he's really dedicated to his bit, and I think he he also really does a good job of heralding in the um, the part of the film where everyone gets their ass kicked by Blanca. So I, for that part, like I really, I find him very particularly endearing. Mm. Yeah, he he's a sweetie. Uh, I I think it's the birthday boy, uh, who's the one who's always talking about ice cream. Yeah, Julian. Yeah, he's fun. Uh, there's also a little girl, and I wish I could remember her name. She's got a cute little dress and cute like hair poofs. I thought her design was adorable. These are all very Yas designs too. He's very good at drawing like, oh, distinctive yeah. children. And old like people, he, which is great. Yeah, like between this and the original series and some of the other stuff, like he very clearly likes kids in a way Tamino does it. He likes kids. He puts in kids. He d- he does cute little shtick with the kids. Yas is pro kids. Yeah. I feel like Tomino likes kids as a metaphor, but Yas actually likes to interact with, like, to talk to kids. And I can imagine him talk, like, respecting kids when he talks to them, like, not talking down to them, um, kind of talking to them like he would talk to an adult, which, in my opinion, is how you should talk to children. I'm uh, I'm interested like if Yas like uh, like how much he interacted with the the kid voice actors I think I mentioned this during the history episode but it's it must be like a very I can imagine some very cute interactions very endearing interactions between um, him and the kids. Speaking of the kids, after dinner the kids try to sleep but are kept awake by Lopez crying. He's afraid of the dark, which is very symbolic considering the lighthouse later. Doan in his living quarters looks over the schematics of what appears to be a missile. As he, do- as he does this, he's haunted by thoughts of the war. Kara comes in, Kara, I should say Kara. Kara comes in and expresses her appreciation for everything Doan's done for them. We'll talk about this the more the closer we get to the end of the film, but there are a few areas I feel Doan's island drops the ball, and this is maybe the biggest. Doan's backstory is never made explicit. Now, you can argue, and I imagine this is what Yas did when he fleshed out the story treatment, you can argue that the information is redundant, like it being the standard war makes good men do bad things bit, but I feel like that it would help to know what Doan was forced to do to establish a proper critique. Plus, I would really like to know how Doan came to watch over these kids. Like, I could fill in the blanks, and my guess might be close to what um, was envisioned or what is, like, right in the lore, but I wish the film did some of that work. Doan's characterization really comes across as a bit thin because of it. Yeah, I, I totally get that because the only connection we really make is during that, that little flashback, we see a glimpse. I, I think it is of Lope just like crying in the rubble. And that's that's the only connection we get between 
Doan's backstory and the kids. And I, I suspect it was purposely structured this way so that if you want that backstory, you got to pony up for those side story manga. You got to buy that volume of Gundam Ace because something, something corporate synergy that or they presume any but that most people watching this movie are at least familiar with this ep- original episode if they've not already seen it. So they, they can fill in the blanks themselves. Yeah, totally. This is something Star Wars does a lot. Usually for usually I'm indifferent to it just because it's like a minor character. Um, like, um, what does this singer in the background do for a living, or how do they come to this location? Here, though, I think it's especially egregious because Doan is, like, the main character or one of the main characters of the film, so I think it stings even more so. Like, Force Awakens is full of these plot holes, um, and it kind of hurts the film, but, like, I don't need to know, like, what Maz Kanata's deal is. She, she's better to, she's better as a mysterious figure. Doan, on the other hand, I need these, I, I feel like I need these questions answered. Yeah, I mean, the other thing, too, is that I think the, uh, you know, the war makes good men do bad things would almost be enough if it were just like it was in the original episode where you had Kukuru's Doan taking care of the kids and a sort of um, less clear identity for the, you know, the, the Zaku or for the Xeon forces that show up at the end of the episode slash film. But here we spend so much time with these Southern tier or Southern cross um, folks just going like, oh, that Kukuru's Done. Mm, you know, or depending, you know, if, if I'm the girl, I just sort of say his name and stare off wistfully. Or, you know, <laughs> if I'm the head guy, I get particularly mad or, or whatever. But a lot of time is spent doing that. And so, like, what is the nature of his treachery is, like, a pretty important question for the motivation of a number of characters. And, uh, man, I, I really need that glue. Yeah, um... Did you know that Kukuru's Done was the commander of Southern Cross? He wasn't just a member, he was the commander. Is that made explicit in the film? I feel like I picked that up. I don't yeah. know. I don't know if it was yeah, made explicit, though. I don't know how I explicit, know that but you definitely could get it through the research. dialogue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The next morning, Doan and the kids idyllically work the fields. Amuro joins them and comically, with the worst form possible, <laughs> attempts to use the hoe. Doan tells, real quick, I'm not an expert uh, horticulturalist or farmer, but the way that Amro is using that instrument is fantastic. It shows you that he is—he <laughs> has never done this kind of labor in his life, and it's very funny. Maybe my favorite comedic, bit, gonna, like unintentionally comedic, fun, uh, funny bit. He's gonna kill his back like that, like he's yeah. completely bent over, butt sticking out, trying to hoe. Uh, I should use that for the like episode post. I'm gonna see if I could find it. But they have a little conversation while while Amuro is hoeing. Doan tells him that volcanic ash becomes dark soil and bring forth uh, forth sprouts. Uh, a lot of beautiful animation on display. A lot of great illustrations of uh, vegetables. This exchange is very symbolically rich. Like even in the most hostile environment, there's the potential for growth and change. Again, this would be this could be made more explicit if we knew more about Doan's backstory. But even after experiencing the horrors of war, you can still live a meaningful and fulfilling life. Even after being a cog in the war machine, you can still break from cycles of, of oppression and forge your own path. I feel like that's what Doan is getting at here. Yes. And what I got from this scene and some of the others to follow, like this is the point where it truly struck me while watching this film in the immortal words of Squidward. Oh no, he's hot! <laughs> because between the, the major glam up 
Cucaroo's Dylan got from Yas and the other character designers on this film. Like before, he was kind of rough and almost like caveman-ish looking, but now he's got you know he's buff and he's got this chiseled chin and he he is legitimately handsome. And you know all the all this good hardworking father figure stuff that he does with the kids. I gotta say, this version of Cucaroo's Dylan's has big Dilf energy. I feel that's especially apparent with the Japanese dub because he has like a certain like gravitas to his voice that, um, yeah, taps into the energy for sure. Yeah, I I think too part of that that glam up and just the link to the thing we were just talking about is like he definitely looks like the leader of an elite unit, right? Like that is mm-hmm. definitely a part of this, and maybe that's almost why you know I it, even. Yeah, I, I I do think it's, it was said like you, you definitely put it together visually that this guy was a leadership guy, uh, and he looks that way. Shenanigans ensue with Blanca, causing Doan to give, upon request, an impromptu milking lesson. Some boys return with a dolphin fish they caught. Amar goes to look for the Gundam again. Doan gives him his hat to protect his head and water to sustain him during his trek. I gotta ask. Echoing our thoughts from earlier, like where's my Blanca side story, Gundam Ace? Um, I know your readership probably doesn't care, but damn it, I do. Blanca's on a rampage. Just give me like a one-off. That's all I need. I want to know Blanca's backstory or where Blanca ends up in the future. I don't know uh, goat lifespans, um, but I hope um, the best happens. Whatever. I hope they live a long, fulfilling goat life after this. I love these slice of life life bits. It's like almost documentary and execution. This film, in some respects, feels so out of time, like it came out of the 70s. I feel like I'm watching Heidi, Girl of the Alps. Like I know people might find the pacing to be plotting, but I really do. Uh, which shouldn't surprise anyone who's listening to me talk. I do appreciate the mundanity of this film. We get an intimate look into how these kids survive on the island. The film is so indulgent and lets, lets us watch their routines unfold without interruption. And not only that, the film does have a pretty good sense of place. In that respect... It reminds me a lot of Howl's Moving Castle, or really any Ghibli joint, in that there are chunks of the film that focus on domesticity, cooking, cleaning, and farming. I understand why some people think this film is a bit directionless, but I love this stuff. And to be honest, we'll talk about this with our wrap-up thoughts, but I think this film is a really good like hangout film or vibe film. These are the parts I'd go back to and just um, let wash over me if I were rewatching it. Yeah, something I've come to understand is that like my sense of what is like important or like an, an, an essential element of the pacing of a film doesn't seem to jive currently with like some popular consensus on that. Uh, oh, you're he's uh, invoking the Andor. Uh, yeah, I'm about here. to invoke Andor because apparently people think that's pace slow, but like I don't know. Every every ounce of that show is just uh, a gift to me, and I feel like the same applies here to these elements like these are the parts of the film that that teach us about the characters about their life what it is that they they want to do what are their everyday hardships i mean this is what this is what endears you to them this is what this is why you stick around like this is this this is the the essential stuff uh, you know you you can really feel life on this island and come to understand what is Doan's role what are, what are all the children uh, you know, how do they interact with their environment? Uh, you know, I don't know. This is like, this is the core of what's, what's happening to me. This is, this most justifies turning the episode into a film more than, more than anything else going on. Uh, so I'm glad that it does happen that way. I'm glad that we get to spend some time. And of course, you know, to, to reiterate something that we said during the history episode, this is also the richest fodder for 
Ekukuru's Donza Island video game. Thank you, Bandai Namco. <laughs> Hell yeah. Yeah, I, I'm in perfect agreement with you guys. Like, th this is the heart of the film. This is the strongest part of the film. And this is clearly the part that Yaz really cared about. Because, again, like I'm always saying, like, it's the most warm. It's the most human. It's the most small scale. And that's what he likes. That's what he digs. Again, I could watch an experimental film. Um, just this is the film. Like that Takahata film where it's just about canals. I could watch that, but it's it being about Alagranza. I, I got to going back to that family that owns Alagranza. I wonder if they know Don's Island exists. Has anyone reached out to them? I was wondering that myself too. Like it's like one of those things where you know when you, when you make a I don't know a film or a story about a place that isn't your own. Like you know, sometimes it doesn't really matter. Like if you make a story about New York City, like whatever. But if it's like a hyper specific place, <laughs> you know, a random island owned by a private family yeah i don't know I, they must google the name occasionally it's got to come up like they must have like a google tapped where they're alerted because if they just type in their their island name once cuckoo's Downs island's going to come up it's going to be in the google image search hell this podcast episode might be uh the history episode might show up they might know who the three of us are are you telling me steven i should name the episode algranza just to get that uh that seo uh, going Name yeah. it after the family. Really uh, whip Ooh, them up. That might be a bit too much. <laughs> uh, so back at the White Bays, Kika, Katz, and Letts lock themselves in the bathroom to protest Bright's decision to leave Amara behind. Uh, great fr uh, still frame of animation, by the way. I'll try to post on Twitter the kids uh, with their uh, impromptu sit-in. Kai <laughs> sums up the situation perfectly. Quote, it's callous to abandon a comrade just because some higher-up ordered it. End quote. Slegger coaxes them out with a promise of ice cream. With that out of the way, Slegger, Kai, Job John, and Hayato proceed with their plan to launch an unapproved rescue op. They enlist Sayla's help. She'll pilot the core bo booster with Slegger on top of her uh, in a gym with, while Job John will transport the two gun cannons in the gun parry. Not going to lie, I was prepared to write in my notes, this is the most tolerable Slegger has ever been. Kudos to the writing team. Before he deployed that terrible joke about riding Sela, um, I would. There's still some scenes I don't dislike with Slager. The the ice cream bit with the kids is very funny. I think the most important thing about the Slager in this film is that, you know, he exists to be a, a comic relief frat boy. He is not, and no point, unlike First Gundam, is he ever. Uh, I don't know a a. a Someone providing wisdom, I guess, about a you new know, interpersonal situation. That is not his role here. Obviously, you know, you, you can talk about like, is the film condemning his tasteless jokes, et cetera, et cetera. I, I don't know. It's, but like, I don't think there's any secret like who he is. He is not a, uh, you know, a person to take advice from in this film, which I feel like is yeah. the, the minimum at least. <laughs> yeah. His films, his, his like, two tasteless lines are so incidental that's like whatever it's not like the um oh, the this the merit the uh the ring scene with mirai from first gundam and other stuff other scenes surrounding it and also kudos like i i know why these characters are revolting um pmc and i podcast extensively about first gundam and there's an episode where they just randomly decide to leave the white base and do a little mutiny without any without ever actually voicing the ideology that led them to the 
to that decision. Here they voice that ideology. They're friends in trouble. Uh, Kai puts it very specifically. I know why the the A team is going out to find their friend. Love the dirty dozen dirty dozen vibes too. Like this film is such a hodgepodge of genres. Like again, I watch Howl's Moving Castle a lot this week, but it reminds me of Howl's Moving Castle. The film tries to be a slice of life excursion into the countryside. That film, that Miyazaki film, it, it tries to be so much. You got the slice of life go- stuff going on. It's an anti-war war film, and it's a romance. Um, and people comment that the film is too busy. And I feel like, likewise, Cuckoo Stone's Island is equally ambitious. It has the sensibilities, like I said, of a gothic story. It's a like beyond enemy lines war drama. Um, or I should say behind enemies, enemy lines war drama. It's a, it's a survival story, like Lord of the Flies. The film is so busy that part of me wishes it just chose a lane and stuck in it. Uh, all I have to add is one, um, like I said, not only does Yasuhiko like kids, he likes Kika in particular. Like One of yeah. the ways you could always tell he did key animation in an episode of the original show is, does Kika do any funny business? She gets a lot of good moments in the in the origin manga, and she, she gets good moments here. She's the one who really picks up on, honey, ice cream, oh my god. This is such a cute scene for her. But also, going back to our discussion of the origin manga back in the summer, uh, Yas did try his best to make Slager more tolerable like he's got a purpose to serve so he can't he can't completely defang him can't completely make him not a jerk but he tries and and he's still doing so here i I will give him credit just as much as i will give sailor credit for giving slayer quite the (laughs) backhand when he tries to drop that line i wish we got a little more sail on this film i know you can only give so much time to the white base crew but a sail in particular i wanted more of like high no offense to Hayato, Hayato I get. I just need like maybe 10 to 20 more lines from Sela. Later that day, Doan goes off to a secret location to work. Unbeknownst to him, Marcos and Amaro, acting independently, follow him. Amaro, following a treacherous cliffside path, arrives at a subterranean Xeon base. Last episode, we talked about what would make for a fun Dones video game, as PMC alluded to earlier. And we all came to the conclusion that a farming sim would be ideal, and I would love to see that. Um, But might I also suggest an adventure game? Like Amuro exploring a desert island, a deserted island, trying to uncover its secrets is basically missed, just not as atmospheric. And I would be all for that. You know, I was thinking about this because... I think it's interesting. There are definitely some other uh, big mecha franchises which have ended up doing like adventure type games. Like I think there is, isn't there like a, a Detective Ava adventure game for PS2? I believe so. I, yeah. don't, I don't think it gives off missed vibes, but I see right. where you're going with that. It's but it's you know it's it, it is it's through that adventure lens, uh, and certainly I think the uh, the UC setting, especially the one year war. There is a lot of underground bases. There are probably lots of abandoned places because of, you know, the 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 cataclysmic events of the colony drops, the sudden, you know, precipitous decline in po- human population. Uh yeah, exploring, I mean, I think I think you and I both share a fondness for abandoned places, uh, and certainly do, you know, exploring that in the context of the one year war would be fun. I don't know, I'm just stuck on we'll the idea of like game. if if you think of Kukuru's Doan's Island it's like you see equivalent of Stardew Valley then you know exploring the underground base is the equivalent of you know going into the mines it's the mm-hmm. dungeon crawling part mm. absolutely there is a there is a killer tweet about kids going in mines like a hundred years ago kids are in mines 
and <laughs> kids now in 2022 are playing Minecraft, and the tweet went, the, the kids thirst for the mines. <laughs> I, I, sarcastically, of course, but uh, you know, that's this is peak podcasting, trying to uh, remember other people's memes, but nonetheless, I just thought of that. The kids on the island, they, they thirst for the memes. Or they thirst for the mines. Maybe, maybe they also, also thirst, thirst for the memes. Also thirst for memes, yeah. In an effort to show that uh, Doan that he is physically stronger than Amuro and therefore the worthy candidate to pilot the Gundam, Marcos gets into a fist fight with him. After a minute, Doan orders that he stop and tells both of them to leave. He has a job to do. Alone, Doan proceeds deeper into the installation and enters what appears to be a missile silo. In his command center, Makuve gets word that due to Manofsky particle interference, communication has been lost with CA. He orders that a strike team be sent out. All right, so this is uh, a question I have, and I had a few theories as to um, these plot beats. Like, has Doan officially left Zeon? Like, Makuve's subordinate seems to think that he is loyal to the Zeon cause, but his former teammates refer to his treachery. Unless they're referring to his desertion of Doan, like giving up command of the Southern Cross Corps and just picking up some menial job, um, like on the lower end of the spectrum in Xeon. But also, I, don't, I can't really square that because this seems to be a big job, and why would you give it to someone who could potentially um, walk away from the Xeon cause? I, this is a point where I wish Doan's motivations were more fleshed out. Yeah, I think my... If you asked me to write down an answer on a test, I would tell you that... I think the treachery is just that he left the unit to take this job and maybe this job is like covert. So like that it could be mistaken treachery where they think he like bailed on them, but actually he just took this, uh, this important job uh, and now just doesn't pick up the phone anymore. When, when Makuve calls that's also he, he gets in the Xeon boat or plane with 15 kids. I need that answered too. <laughs> right. How does he get the kids? How does he get the goat? How does Blanca get there? Yeah. These are also interesting questions because also there's like, I would assume that when this base was built, assuming that the Zeons built the missile base under the volcano, that there were probably more Zeon forces there. So how did that get built? Which is its own, you know, how do things get manufactured in the one year war? I recognize is an incredibly thorny question that I should not ask. But <laughs> but I am nevertheless always thinking about it. My other outside-the-box theory, I don't think this is actually true, is that someone else was in charge of the uh, the missile, missile silo, and I guess Doan brought the kids to the island, and then he also dispatched with like the one or two mm. Xeon officers who were there. Because we do see, when Marcos jumps, swims underwater, we do see a Zaku unit, a damaged Zaku unit, mm. which I don't think was addressed before, unless I'm wrong. Yeah, I don't think it was addressed, yeah. Unless maybe Doan was there with someone else, but also who's Makuve's subordinate with the awful haircut? Or like yeah, you could you could agree with me. That's not a good haircut, right? No, it's a bad haircut, but that's kind of his haircut. deal. That's like he looks yeah. that way in first condom too, <laughs> and it's great. I love I love I love Oregon. He also has a really funny bit in um in one of the postscript origin side stories. Uh, it's very goofy. He's very stupid. I love hating him. It's fun. <laughs> He doesn't leave as much of an impression of Duran, but I kind of like lump them together. Yeah, no, they're they're a similar caliber henchman. I was gonna say he, my brain always confuses him with Gotten, who is uh, a Zeon minion from Double Zeta, but that's much later. 
Didn't we have one? PMC, you named an episode title like Gotham. Was that from First Gundam? Yes. Gotham is the old guy who pilots the Zaku One and has the Papua oh, supply yeah. ship that helps out Shara. And he acts like he's been piloting mobile suits for like 20 years. I love that guy. They've he's all, so stupid. He's only been around for a few years. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's only been around for like months, you dummy. <laughs> oh, first Gundam. The Southern Cross Corps get their marching orders. They're left to deal with the saboteur on Alagranza and perform a manual missile launch. After their briefing, they theorize that Doan might be the saboteur. Their reactions are mixed. So this is my second biggest complaint with the film. The Southern Cross Corps are all, to me, a bunch of nothing burgers. No one stands out. They receive little in the way of characterization. They have no distinguishing personality quirks or ideological concerns. Yeah, there's the guy with the cool tattoo. The girl probably had a romantic attachment to Doan. I need something more than that, though. Like, I need something more than Doan suck shit. Let's beat him up. They're, I feel like they're completely wasted. Yeah, I initially wanted to make a joke about them being like the teen girl squad, but there's five of them, not four. So I can't oh. quite describe those roles. But like coming out of it, it's like he asked me to describe them. Like uh, there's the grumpy guy. There's the girl. There's Crispin Freeman. There's what's his face and the crazy tattooed bastard guy who is really horny over the idea of fighting and killing Cougar's Dawn. When I started the history notes after having watched the film, I thought to myself, all right, these these guys must exist in the Doan manga. I feel like there must be a lot more material with them so people going into this film would have an idea. That's not the case. You could probably like do a you could probably read all the of Doan's the Don't the Cougar's Doan manga and then watch this film and there'll be some like connection just because it takes place before this in the Dark Colony where they're cooking up all those prototype mechs. But none of these characters make an appearance in that. So it's so weird because there it does seem like there's a lived history. And yes, you could re- buy that one book and maybe read a, like a one-off in uh, Gundam Ace. But like, I feel like, man, like I would like, not that these are interesting characters, but for, th- for the sake of narrative cohesion, I would like more bits with them. But when I, when I rewatched the film for these notes, I thought to myself, there must be three or four scenes before the battle occurs. There's just like two real quick scenes with them before um, the climactic battle happens on Alagranza. In what might be the most rousing scene of the movie, the white base bridge crew put their plan into action. The gun parry and core booster leave the hangar and head in the direction for Alagranza. Bright, bright defense force rise up, covers for them to his superior by making up a story about a malfunctioning gyro. His white lies keep the white base grounded. Uh, Megan, I'm sure you can agree with me here. Bright fans are feasting. Absolutely. I love this scene because I love moments like this where Bright gets to show off his own kind of brand of cunning because, you know, he's not necessarily as, you know, he's not like someone like Kai who, you know, easily lie and be snarky. He's, he's very much on the lawful side if we're talking about like alignments, but it it's a sort of cunning that he gets more and more comfortable with. As you get through the franchise and you get into things like Zeta and Double Zeta and Char's Counterattack and even Unicorn. Yeah, this is definitely that bright. This is definitely the bright. Uh, I mean, even right away, you know, in Zeta, who who ends up, you know, kind of going to hang out with Aug, or, or, you know, ends up, uh, you know what, kids, have have the Nahal Argama. Don't worry about it. Just do do your thing. Uh, you know, the, the one who definitely learns to read the room and to act on uh you know his his gut and conscience and you know and to sort of do it in a way that doesn't 
blow up the system, uh, which I think is you know what he really specializes in. The, this PMC and I, and I were both bobbing our heads to the music of the scene because it's the classic, the classic 0079 Gundam tunes. It's it's fantastic. This scene rules. <laughs> Amara and Marcos run to the lighthouse just as a storm hits the island. The kids, terrified, hunker in the dark dining room. To much fanfare, Amaro gets the power on by fixing the battery. He also fixes the lighthouse, which Doan spots on his return trip. He angrily tells Amaro that he shouldn't have done that. Presumably, like moths to a flame, it will draw unwanted attention. As if on cue, the gun parry, followed by the Southern Cross Corps, fly over the island. Doan comments that one can't escape one's past before preparing to engage them in battle. He enlists Marcos's help. We talked about this before. I'm going to address it one more time. I think this is where the deficiencies of Doan's character are at their most obvious, at their most egregious. Doan points out the camaraderie of Amaro's friends, but tells him he'll have to destroy them. We don't know why exactly. We can presume it's to protect the kids, but it's not made explicit, which wouldn't be a problem if the connection between Doan and the kids was addressed earlier, and it's not. Plus, we know almost nothing about Doan's past, so him confronting it really does land a bit flat. You know, I'm going to jump in with just a, a point that I think I'd, I'd put in later, but it's maybe more relevant now, which is that this whole bit about Doan warning Amuro that he might need to confront his comrades really falls flat in this film, considering that all of his comrades are like solely living in comic relief land. Like I, this is kind of what I was yeah. talking about earlier, where the fact that, you know, they're all like, Hayato and Kai and Slager are all having a, you know a funny goofy time with the kids. That's great. I do love the kids. It is funny and fun, but it is hard for me to particularly be worried about Amuro having to confront them in this context. Mm. Uh, I should also add, because you pointed this out in just the scene beforehand, this is also the point where the movie really starts needle-dropping a lot of the more recognizable music cues from the original series. And on one hand, it's the most memorable part of the music score. On the other hand, it's also the part that's not original music score. Yeah, and that, that highlights my issues with the origin soundtrack writ large. As much as I do appreciate, what's his name, Hattori as a composer, um, I feel like the uh, the idyllic... Island pieces are fun, but once you just drop something from First Gundam in there, I'm all on board. And as a result, like the identity of the film, the aural identity of the film, or I guess it really doesn't have an identity because of it, um, which might have been done on purpose, but I think it makes the film seem a little redundant at times. So before the battle is set to begin, Amuro asks to help. Doan asks him if he'll fight for these kids, even if it's against his comrades. He complies. As they make their way by boat to the secret Zeon base, Slegger and Sela engage the Southern Cross Corps. They shoot down a few of the planes. Kai and Hayato and the gun cannons have already engaged the enemy. Sela takes a hit and is forced to crash land the core booster. Humorously, Slegger absolutely eats it during the landing. <laughs> God, I love that moment. Seeing Slegger's ugly ass GM go bonk on that rock was so satisfying. <laughs> And maybe I, now's the. I was gonna say maybe now's the time to talk about that that particular unit because it is truly like an offensive color scheme, and it is. It is, but I also on like on one hand, like I I would not recommend painting your mobile suit this way, but on the other hand, now I want more, right? Like I want. <laughs> 
more mobile suits to be painted with intentionally clashing colors. Just want someone like, to paint some flames on theirs. Yeah. Yeah. Like put some flames on, you know, some racing stripes, you know, just like <laughs> really bad decisions for, for mobile suits in, in these works. Bring them, bring it on. I'm half surprised that Slager didn't insist that the S on the GM's chest be like the cool S. <laughs> yeah. It's like the, yeah, like what was the, the 90s, like one you draw. Yeah, no, that's what it should be. Yes. All right. So I did look it up, uh, courtesy of P. Bondi, which a lot of people have issues with. This is coming out. Um, it's coming out January 2023, a model kit of it. 23 bucks um, if the uh, if it's like released in your area. I'm not sure how hard to get it is. If it's not hard to get, I have a local Gumpla store. Uh, I interviewed the owner uh, on a previous episode. I would drop 25 bucks on this for like posterity's sake or like as a joke, which is weird because it would be the only model could I own. It's the ugliest fucking gym imaginable. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, yeah, we're making looks... fun of it, but I'm also actively on Google going, how much does this thing I mean, cost? it's right. It's iconic. It's iconically ugly. That's yeah. There's something to be said for that. <laughs> I wonder if, I wonder what the meeting was between, I talked about uh, Kuni Okawara uh, took meetings on the production of Origin as more of like, as in, more of an honorary capacity. I imagine he also had a few meetings with like Kotoki um, in the lead up to production on Kukuru Stones Island. I wonder how the conversation went about, all right, what are we going to do about uh, Slegger's gym? Let's make it just the fuckingest ugly thing you can imagine. <laughs> uh, let's just make it awful. Like the, the Margarita Villa of gyms. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's, that's, that might be the episode title. That's fantastic. I just wanted to say, like, it definitely doesn't look as bad in mo- uh, gunplay form as it does on screen. Like, the colors there are kind of more weirdly muted and sickly. This one is just here. It just looks like Slager said, "Make it look like the Gundam," because he would absolutely be that yeah. asshole. Right, but, but right, he because he wants to be the Gundam, but then he ends up being like Gundam Baja Blast instead, you know. <laughs> hey, now but, there will be people yeah. take offense to that. Yeah, don't invoke there, ba- there don't bring Baja, like Baja Blast. Blast. This. It's not my mouth of like, choice, but I respect it. This is like the the live wire or the the, the melon spark of GM. The Gundam Code Red. Yes. Yeah, quick sidebar here, yes. Megan. What's your Mountain Dew hierarchy? I'm I'm partial to classic Mountain Dew. Um, which might be blasphemous, but it goes classic Baja Blast and then Code Red. I don't know. I was I was kind of underwhelmed by Baja Blast myself. I mean, when I'm not going for the original, uh, my go-to is a a regional variant, which is Goji Citrus. Uh, sorry, Goji Strawberry Citrus, which you can only get at a couple of uh, um, convenience stores uh, chains around here. Like I said before, that's so my shit. I'm sure there's a, if there was a gas station at Alagranza, you could buy that Mountain Dew there. <laughs> I'm sure if there's a convenience store there, the kids wouldn't struggle so hard. True. You know, you'll notice in my summary too. I just didn't bother to uh, identify individual Zeon soldiers. That's a bit of editorialization on my part. I was just like, they all bleed together. I, I will mention the name of the uh, squadron's commander a bit later. But the Southern Cross Corps make quick work of the still inexperienced white base crew. Hayato's gun cannon is destroyed while Kai gets its legs cut off. This is when Doan enters the fray. He puts up a fierce fight, disabling one of the high-mobility Zakus. Meanwhile, two Zeon soldiers enter the base. Correct me if I'm wrong, PMC. One of them is um, Crispy, right? 
Yeah, one of them is Waldo, who I think is crispy. Yeah. Yes. The other one is who the fuck cares? <laughs> yeah, the other one is what's his face? I think I'm. I'm just gonna start I mean, I using ha- Megan's names. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I yeah, it's it's appropriate to do that. I had the list up. I was like, whatever. These, these fuckers. <laughs> uh, one alights from Hizaku and activates the missile launch sequence. At the same time, Amuro sneaks into the Gundam and proceeds to take out the two intruders. Yes, I mean one of them. I, he- oh, go ahead, Megan. I was gonna say that scene. That that was hype. That was a nice reintroduction of the Gundam. That that was well staged. Yeah, no, definitely agree there. That was definitely a maybe like the favorite because I think it really brings back uh, the thing that we mentioned before the sort of the slasher villain nature of the of the Gundam that it just sort of appears out of the dark. Yeah, I think that got like a audible reaction in our theater. The bright slap definitely got a reaction, <laughs> and this did too. <laughs> The bright slap doesn't get gets that reaction. No offense to the audience I saw it with, which included one of my students. That's the, the it it shouldn't get that reaction all the time just because I know why they're clapping. But nonetheless, this scene definitely deserved it. I do want to say, uh, maybe maybe an all time brutal uh, kill by Amaro here because I think he 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 just normally defeats what's his face, but. He, uh, what's happening is yeah, because uh, Waldo had to get out and turn on the missile launch sequence, he is not in his mobile suit, and he is instead you know running back through a tunnel to get back to the back to his mobile suit, and so he is caught you know out of suit by Amaro, and Amaro opts to just step on him just to absolutely you know, uh, you know, did you say don't tread on me? <laughs> Good luck with that, Chief. Uh, <laughs> so just absolutely murders him uh, and Amuro kind of like grimaces about it uh, but it's definitely interesting I think it's interesting for Amuro to be doing this at this point in time because in terms of like in terms of like mobile suit to human body violence uh, it calls back in my mind to the bit from early in first Gundam inside seven where when the commando team is leaving side seven the commando team of Shar. Uh, Shar sort of recognizes that Amara is not actually going to shoot them, like not actually going to hit a, you know a, a human being that he can see as a human being. Uh, this Amaro does not have that problem, uh, which is not to say that they are in- incongruous. A lot has happened between Side Seven and here, uh, but you know I think it more speaks to the development than necessarily being inconsistent. Mostly, I just think yeah, of those poor white base engineers that are going to have to hose off that foot <laughs> afterwards. Yeah, no, you got to imagine for the rest of the movie, there is just Crispin Freeman on the bottom of that right foot. Kara <laughs> <laughs> attempts to corral the kids to a safer location, but Blanca, spooked from the battle, bolts out and the kids follow. Of course, shenanigans ensue. We get some great postcard memories of Blanca kicking the shit out of Hayato, <laughs> Job, John, and Kai. Um, I'm going to post those on Twitter for sure. Kika and the kids meet Kara and the children. Frau name drops Amro, which causes both groups of foundlings to join together in order to find him. They trek up to the crater in the center of the island where they find Doan locked in a fierce battle with the Zeon commander. Yeah, I mean, just to reiterate what I said before, like... As much as I feel bad, they're sort of unhooked from the narrative. This is all is fun in in a way that is not dissimilar to what we were talking about before with the farming scenes being core to the film. 
seeing the two groups of kids link up is good and heartening and enjoyable. It'd be interesting, like, who Don't pairs mess off with Blanca. With who? Oh, and Blanca, of course. Yeah, you have to, you have to reference <laughs> Blanca. Where's my Blanca model kits, P-Bondi? <laughs> well, we're more like a Blanca plushie, right? That's really what you need. True. Or, or maybe a statue, you know, instead of, like, a uh, great Gundam generation, you know, so, like the guys or the girls, this great Gundam goat. <laughs> G Gundam, goat Gundam. Yeah, I mean, the ho- a horse pilot's a uh, Gundam. Let Blanca pilot a Gundam. That's right, yeah. I wonder if that that fan art must have been drawn. If not, you listener, yeah, you know what to do. I, I, I am convinced people seeing that horse thing from G Gundam have absolutely done it for other animals. I would be shocked if it's not been done. Ethan, if you're listening, you know what to do. <laughs> Eggba, yes, the Xeon Commander. Oh, yeah, totally. I, I will I will retweet it. Egba, the Xeon commander, using his suit's speed and precision, disarms Don Zaku. Like, literally, it cuts off his arm. It hey. seems that... And yeah. Well, I, I, I want to make it explicit for the all, listeners, if they haven't seen all of Kukuru's Don's Island, that he loses an arm. So he's, he's, he starts, like, throwing rocks at the uh, high-mobility Zaku. And it seems that Egba has Don dead to rights until Amuro in the Gundam, too much fanfare, both diegetic fanfare and non-diegetic fanfare, um, arrives and he's illuminated by the lighthouse. This is such a triumphal moment. Like I even imagine that fans who weren't so hot on this movie were smiling big here. The music, the dramatic framing of the Gundam, the dual sabers, perfect. Love Haro's line, by the way. Late, late Amuro. Um, I, Haro defender. Haro should have gotten one or two more lines in this film. Meanwhile, she's like, ah, ha, ha, I see what you, you had, you had to get that rock throwing reference in there. Cause it's one of the things everyone knows about this episode is Kukuruzdon's Zaku throwing rocks. Yeah. It's like weird because on, on one hand they, they do it in a way that's like sensible where it's like, uh, you know, it's like a last ditch attempt. That's not really going to work, but he's doing it anyway. It makes sense, you know, in a way that it didn't before in the episode, but like, I don't know. Realism be damned. I wish at some point he just threw a big rock, you know, like uh, like yeah. rock in <laughs> Batman the Animated Series. Egba and Amuro clash as the missile timer counts down. Despite his Zaku's upgrades, Egba is no match for Amuro, who cuts him down, sending him plummeting into the ocean. As Gandalf might say, Amuro smote his ruin on the mountainside. But his victory is short-lived, for the ballistic missile launches. The Federation fleet tries to shoot it down, but to no avail. Once it breaks through the atmosphere, it splits into six pieces. But just when all hope looks lost, the missiles fizzle and explode. The kids marvel at the unexpected fireworks show. Turns out, Doan sabotaged the missiles from within. You know, good guy Doan here. Th- again, this would have hit harder if the narrative explored Doan's wartime experience and desertion. It would add a lot of weight to his decision to break from Xeon, giving the film some stakes. As is, like with much of the film, there are a lot of visually striking tableaus. For example, the kids looking up at the combusting missiles. But I feel like they lack meaning. In a lot of ways, the narrative feels like it's going through the motions without taking time to explore the many ideas it introduces. It gives the film a meandering quality, which is not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, in some respects, I think it's quite bold. Like it, 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 This film definitively like plants its flag, plants its flag on the island of, it's okay to be boring. And I appreciate it for that. I just wish some of these threads were tied together a bit more succinctly. 
at the very end of the film. Frau embraces Amro. The kids celebrate Doan. As an act of final revocation for Doan, Amro picks up his Zaku and throws it into the Atlantic. Um, there's like t- uh, 60 more seconds of film. The white base soars over the, the island and the lighthouse, and they all basically wave up to it. The the one problem here is that from the original episode, the 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 bit where like Ryu is making the worst face in the world is like forever seared into my memory for this part. Like the face, I I love this face so much. I made it into an emote um, for, for use in the giant robot of Discord server, where like this is what Ryu is the face he's making when in the episode Amuro throws the Zaku uh, into the ocean. I will say at least that I feel like given what happened to his Zaku and given, you know, the, the death of Sullivan cross part of, you know, why we learned that the Island was important strategically and that the missiles are gone. Now it feels like severing this last link makes sense in this film in a way it emphatically did not make sense in the original episode. So once again, you know, to kind of bring it back to the opening bit with the Federation soldiers, uh, you know, the, the film is more coherent than the original episode, to be sure. It's definitely a step up from the original episode, I'll say that. It's nice that it ends on a nice you know, grace note, you know, sun rising, that the, the new insert song playing over the credits, everybody's smiling and waving. Over the credits, there's drawings of Julian's birthday done by Yas, which are really pretty. And it's kind of nice to have this, because if you remember where this falls in in the origin, things are about to get not so good for people because, of course, we're, they're about to go to Belfast, so things are about to get real bad for Kai soon. And, and of course, eventually, you know, once they're done with Odessa, they got to go back up to space, and then their side six, and now all the stuff with uh, Cameron and Slager, and just oh, there, there's there's so much drama ahead. Actually, this film makes me want to reread um, or the origin because, um, and it hasn't been that long since we all podcasted about it, but I'm I'm kind of itching to dive back in. All right, let's give some takes. Start us off, Megan. Final thoughts on the film. No mobile suit martial arts. Therefore, 0 out of 10 F minus. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. In all serious, though, I, I'd say this is a not a great film, but it's a good film. Like, it's a solid 7.5 out of 10. Uh, I feel like it's at its best when it's focused on its most human elements. You know, be that the camaraderie on the white base or Doan's found family on the island. And I think more so than the origin OVA, it really proves that Yaz's skill as a director has not waned over the years. You said it's kind of a good vibes film, something to have on the background. I feel like this could actually be a decent jumping on point for people who might be curious about UC Gundam, but don't necessarily want to commit to a show yet. Like, here, here's two hours of it. It looks really nice and modern and everything. Though... And I think overall, it is one of the better films within the Gundam franchise, although that's not necessarily due so much to the film's quality as it is the fact that most Gundam films are just compilations and that those that aren't tend to be a little troubled. Let's just say troubled. Where would you rate this on the Yasuhiko uh, film hierarchy? The four films Mm. to choose from. Good question. Um... I would say Ariane on top. I don't know. I'd say it's on about par with Crusher Joe. Yeah, like somewhere in the middle of Crusher Joe and then maybe Venus War at the bottom. Although I don't want to say Venus War is bad. I actually rather like Venus Wars. Yeah, 
Yeah, I, I'd say that's where I rank it. Yeah, I think I'm going to go Arion. I might actually go this. I might put it above Venus Wars and then Crusher Joe on the bottom for me. But Arion, by far, as PMC, I'm sure you can agree, best uh, Yasuhiko directed film. Oh, do I have to answer this question now? Okay. No, no. Yes. I'm going to be real. I, I still need to watch Crusher Joe, but I think my ranking actually puts Venus Wars at top. Venus Wars really tickles okay. me in a lot of ways, uh, even right. though I recognize that the uh, structure is, is kind of, especially the, you know, that, that final act is a little, little out there. Um, there's just something about, I don't know, like that sort of big, big eighties film mm. making that really, really does it for me, especially in a science fiction setting, you know, the, even because you get a little bits of world building. I don't know. I, I, I could talk about why I like that. So I think, I think it goes like Venus Wars, uh, Don Arion for me. Arion still has lots of good things. I think Arion is Yas's best action film. Um, okay. But and I apologize for putting words in your mouth. That's a respectful yeah. opinion, though. No, no, no. My, my, I think that's where I end. As I said, I still want, I still want to watch Crusher Joe at some point. Uh, we'll, we'll get there. But I mean, as as for uh, you know, final take on Don should have Mobile Suit Martial Arts, of course. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I think given the film's constraints, like the premise of this film, I think it ended up like. It nailed the stuff that it needed to nail, which was the slice of life stuff. So that's really good. That's really fun. And, and slice of life, both for white base and for the island, uh, that was really important. It's really kind of the the sort of the the more fully new stuff that really falls flat. Some of that may be, you know, I think as as you all suggested, it could have been hampered because of tie-ins. That's why we don't get more information on Southern Cross or or Doan himself. Because, you know, the biggest problem with the film is that, as I said, a lot of the action doesn't really have much in the way of stakes. It's against nobodies and gyms, or it's the Southern Cross, and either we're being introduced to them, or they're being immediately shown off stage. Uh, and there's not much more to be to be said there for that. Uh, but yeah, I, I think you know you can just kind of tune in, enjoy enjoy the island, enjoy walking around the island, looking for your mobile suit, climbing cliffs, swimming farming like it's just it's just a very uh you know good place to hang out uh you know it <laughs> it is uh it is really enjoy and cuckoo's Stone again is kind of a mystery i i kind of wish i knew more of, like the way people talk about him and i'm gonna invoke this on the podcast even though i already said it out loud hours ago but like there's so much mystery and so many people spend time cursing him that I kind of feel like Cougar's Down has a little bit of like that Brad Neely's George Washington energy. <laughs> that's like he killed his den his sensei in a duel and never said why. Um, you know, he probably makes love like an eagle falling out of the sky. Like that's just that's Cougar's Down. You know, that's just we we don't know more about him, but you know, he's running a great a great little joint on this island here. Uh, it's so like an American but, folk hero. Like yeah, Paul exactly. Bunyan. He's he's kind of a yeah he's a he's a folk hero for the Universal Century. That's Cougar's Down. So. <laughs> the film works. I could, as I said, I definitely think I could see this. Just put put this on in the background. Tune in when you want to tune in. Tune in what works for you. Um, it's yeah, it, actions whatever. But I I like the kids. I like I like the don. I like the interactions. Yeah, I agree with all your points. It's tough too because I'm like, how would I improve this film potentially if I were doing a rewrite or making my own version of Cuckoo's Dones? And if you like, I recommended this film might be helped. It might be helped if this film's like 
chose a lane and stuck in it, but I feel like it would lose that meandering quality, which I like. And also, like if you made it like that gothic story 100% where it's just Amur on the island, there's so- potentially something more meaningful there, but you would lose a lot of the fun bits with the white base crew. And also, like historically, this is the last time a lot of these first Gundam people are getting together to make a Gundam thing. Like, Of course, you want to include everyone. I get why they want to do this. It's a great hangout film, great vibes film. And for that reason, I kind of want the dub to be more accessible just because I could throw it on the background, don't have to be reading the subtitles the entire time, and can kind of just like coexist with the film, uh, tuning in in some of my favorite parts. Like the uh, incontestable, uncontestable great scene in uh, Casablanca with the best mobile suit fight there ever was. I feel like someone's going to like clip me and just like say, Stephen Hero thinks that that was the best fight that ever happened in Mobile Suit Gundam. Do not do that, my friends. That would be incorrect. (laughs) But yeah, any final, any final words? I'm just happy that this film actually did pretty well. So, ha ha, suck it, Tomino. <laughs> G-Recco, more like G-Wrecked. Ooh. Oh! Ooh. Shoutouts to Russell, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad that's Someday a Someday he'll bit. see those films. Yeah, so, uh, Megan, give us, give us some plugs. Where can the good people find you on the internet? All right, well, until I'm probably back here again someday to talk about some Yasuhiko-related thing. Uh, you can read my manga reviews at themangatestdrive.blogspot.com. You can read my longer reviews and essays and whatnot at my side blog, renaissancejose.blogspot.com. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at brainchild129. And if you like what I do here or elsewhere that you want to follow up on all of my writing and maybe even give me money for it on the regular, you can do so on Patreon at Megan D. Excellent. I heartily recommend all of those plugs. All right, PMC. It's time to go. Like like Amaro plowing the fields, it's time for you to do some plugs. I just hope you have better posture and form than Amaro. Yeah, time to destroy my back (laughs) trying to talk about ways to support Gyrobot FM. Uh, For example, you could write nice words about us on various reviews for iTunes, Spotify, or your other platform of choice. Or also just, you know, retweet things and, you know, share us on Twitter. We are terrible Twitter fiends. We are uncontrolled. Uh, you can enable that habit and we would love it. Uh, if you want to support us directly, we do have a Patreon, patreon.com slash giant robot FM. Uh, we have a number of tiers of a few different things that we run through our Patreon. Uh, all tiers get access to the exclusive Discord which uh, at the moment is just a sea of memes and you know people sharing their work, and it's a lot of fun to, to goof around. Uh, we have been doing a bonus series of podcasts covering Gundam the Witch from Mercury on a weekly basis. Uh, I'm going to summarize this there to try and make it as easy to follow as possible. If that is of interest to you, the listener, the first two episodes of Radio Free Mercury, which is what we're calling this series, are on our free feed. All the episodes after that, that that were released in the month of October are available to all patrons. And then starting November, that bonus podcast here uh, is something that we're going to be releasing for $5 and above patrons. Uh, the bonus podcast is kind of something right now that Radio Free Mercury is substituting for something that we used to do called B-Plots, which we will do once again once uh, once The Witch from Mercury is over. B-Plots is where we talk about kind of other media that we are watching and consuming. There will be almost 100% guaranteed an episode of B-Plots where Steven and I talk about Andor and how it is better than anything else Star Wars ever, maybe. We'll see. Yeah. 
I know. I wake up <laughs> every morning. I'm like, this is, could be the best Star Wars thing ever. This could be the and best it, it Star Wars thing. Yeah. It might be. One more thing. If you really, really support us and you're into mecha video games, I would love to recommend our $10 tier. We have a uh, another premium podcast series we do called Simulator where we give mecha video games the same treatment that we give to mecha anime. So that's, you know, it's the history coverage, the production coverage, as well as talking about the work itself. We have done the first three Armored Core games. We have done Zardion. Currently at work on Front Mission. We're hoping to drop that Front Mission history episode around the time that the Front Mission remake comes out. And then also, of course, uh, after that, do an episode on the Front Mission remake itself. You know, having played it, cover that on the podcast. Uh, we definitely have a lot of interest in covering uh, from soft and front mission games, among other things, uh, on Simulator. So definitely look forward to that. Uh, and also, just in terms of future coverage for Giant Robot FM, uh, you know, we next week we're going we're to have a roundtable discussion on Cuckoo's Dones Island. Uh, but we'll also be moving on beyond that to the Big O. Uh, and if you're curious about other things that we're going to cover, you know, potentially we're looking at things like Gunbuster and G Savior uh, in the future. So, you know, if that sounds of interest to you, we would love your direct support. Uh, and also just, you know, tell people about what we're doing. Actually, PMC, you have something to plug too on the free feed. Oh, I do That's have something right. to plug. Oh my God, I totally forgot about that. Uh, so I, I did mention this over on Ready for Mercury. I'm going to mention it here as well. Uh, it, I recently got the news this past weekend that I will be uh, doing the run of Armored Core Project Phantasma any percent at Ar uh, actually on the podcast on the uh, you have to be a patient to listen to this. I accidentally said Armored Core Games Done Quick at Austin Games Done Quick <laughs> 2023. Uh, very I excited, that, but forgot to point it out. It's very funny though. Yeah, it was funny. It was funny listening back when I was editing. Uh, but so again, that is going to be the first time an Armored Core game appears at a, GD a mainline GDQ event. Uh, I get to do that, which is just, you know, super exciting. It's a real, real treat for me be, to be able to sort of, uh, you know, exist at the intersection of a bunch of interests, speedrunning, video games, mecha. Uh, so really, really happy to, uh, you know, to be able to do that. That run will be in, uh, in January. I don't have an exact date yet because the schedule has not been released. The schedule comes out uh, in like another two weeks or so. Uh, so I will, of course, be, uh, be you know, posting that loud and clear on Twitter on, on this podcast and other places uh, when I do get the scheduled date. And as we approach that date, uh, but cool news, you know, it's uh, it is, I think the best armored core speed run. And uh, I'm delighted to be able to share it with such a big audience. Excellent. I'm just, I'm just here trying as you're saying that celebrating with you, I'm trying to screen cap Amaro with his bad posture. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to find the most hilarious frame to choose. We're, we're getting there. We're doing, I'm doing the Lord's work. PMC, you wanna? Do you have any like final like lines down this on? Uh, I mean, you know, I I knew that in the end, Kukuro's Dunes Island would be a rocky experience. Megan on a scale of one to ten. Ah, <laughs> uh, not as grown worthy as Kukuru's tome, but that—that's a little more mid. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, no, it's, it's that's fair. <laughs>